Hey friends, you know, when I was in my mid-twenties, I got off a plane from the UK and I was so excited because I had received my DPhil, my Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford University. And I had studied religious epistemology in the 16th century. That is, the way people that were Christians were bringing their philosophy into the classroom. And so that's always been an interesting subject for me. And because of that, I found myself interviewing for jobs at primarily Christian or church-related universities. And when I came to these interviews, I was usually prepared to talk about my research, my agenda for future writing and publication, and my teaching style. But instead, what I found myself over and over talking about was my worldview and the question of how I would teach a Christian worldview in every class. Now, over the years, I've come to ask myself a different kind of question. And that question is, should worldviews, or specifically a Christian worldview, be taught? And I've come to think that maybe you shouldn't do it at all. That is, the idea of teaching a worldview instead of teaching people how to look at the world, how to examine, to process, and to contemplate the world is far more important. I'm not saying that your religious and spiritual values ought not come out in the classroom. Quite the opposite. I think that old idea that we are purely objective and that we are going to separate out the questions of spirituality and God from the rest of our subjects in class is an old, modernistic, and archaic way of thinking. No, we don't do that. But the idea specifically of worldviews, that word in particular, we're going to look at that, especially since on this show, we want to help rethink the way we do religious education. And so many K-12 schools and liberal arts colleges and universities pride themselves and sell themselves by saying that they emphasize a Christian worldview. Because that's so prevalent and so important, I think it's important for us to look at what a worldview is, whether it can be taught, and whether it should be taught. Really, what we're looking at is the dangers and the pitfalls of this. There is a way in which that language of Christian worldviews could be understood in a healthy manner. That is, there's a way in which bringing a community together to investigate the world with a shared story and with shared values that are healing within that world, you know, we can go look at scientific information and then ask a shared question, how are we going to use this to help our neighbors and ourselves live healthy and wonderful lives, prosper and, and flourish? That's a great that's a great way to think of it, but that's often not the way it's been done. So we're going to look at a little bit of that and the history of that. And then in the second segment, we're going to interview our friend Marcos Ruiz of the El Lector podcast. You may have heard of him before on my previous podcast. My co-host Dan and I went with him to Havana, Cuba to investigate religion and society in the aftermath of Fidel Castro. And we're going to reflect a little bit on this show with this interview in his beautiful Miami backyard about the ways in which ideology and worldview was able to overtake an entire nation, albeit a small one, off the coast of Florida in a beautiful, beautiful, warm, tropical climate. That's where we're coming to you from now, friends. And even though we are going to hit a couple potential triggers related to cultural practices that are cruel, overall, it should be a relatively smooth ride do keep your seatbelts fastened, however, and your hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times. Here we go. All ahead, one third. 
Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons about foxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry, because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. Where are we, baby? We are in Miami. The land of invasive iguanas, Colombian hot dogs, joy, disco, and... Lots as, of alpha. Lots of alpha dudes. Lots of... Te- I wouldn't just say dudes. There's just a lot, lots of alpha That's why everybody. I said lots of alpha. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what we're going to talk about this, I think, in a future co- uh, podcast, because we've realized there's, there's a lot of different spirits to... You know, or, or the ethos of certain areas. And it's been fascinating for us to kind of explore that. And, and Fast cars. <laughs> but we're with our dear friend. Oh, yeah. Marcos and his lovely wife. And his Chessie drug of choice family. are beautiful, beautiful cigars. So I never <laughs> smoke better cigars. In fact. And some whiskey. And some beautiful whiskey. But the, the thing about Marcos is that he actually got some cigars straight from Cuba, came today. And it came from an old friend of ours that traveled with us to Havana. And so what a, what a nice fortuitous way to arrive along with a package. We showed up and a package, a box of cigars. And so beautiful long table out here in the backyard. But the pool is the real interesting thing, baby. <laughs> Tell us about the pool. So apparently the house in, you know, in the, the past was owned by the guy who created Flipper. Ivan Tors. So he married Constance Dowling. And their son, Peter Torres, was in Caddyshack. Caddyshack. Now listen, some people, like five years older than me, if you're, if you're five years older than I am, you love Caddyshack <laughs> in a way that I can't quite understand. You know, I've got a right. different thing. And then the kids, every generation has its movie. But, but Caddyshack, a big deal. And rumor has it that most of, if not all, the cast of Caddyshack at one point was hanging out in the backyard here. Enjoying the pool. Five feet from where we sit right now, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, I imagine, jumped into the pool, did a cannonball cannonball with a beer in their hand. (laughs) And, uh, well, what a great place to do it with the palm trees. It is so beautiful. If you find yourself in the right spot, it, it sure is great. And we also had a great time. We went to Versailles, which is an old famous Cuban restaurant in... It was delicious. Oh, it was so yeah, good. And you had the uh, the Imperial Rice, which is... Which not, wasn't traditional, but... It, you're going to get it at you, Cuban You got more of a traditional dish, and then yeah. I got that one so that we could... Listeners, if you don't already know this, we have to plan... We've mentioned this, but we do plan our... When we eat out and that we kind of divide up, we divide and conquer so we can get a yes. taste a little bit of everything. There are different a, types of this things. This is a side issue, but our <laughs> daughter-in-law, it, my son's fiance, is... 
somebody who kind of clued us into this that if you go out to eat with us, it's it great be because it's a little traumatizing. <laughs> it's a little traumatizing because <laughs> if you're new, you're not to allowed the... to just order something. Yeah. Everybody has to. But I think we've coordinate. mentioned this. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there you go. But it's it's a true. And so it it was something we're we big fans to do. of family style. Right. So if two people get the same thing, that's not family style. That's just you know <laughs> ordering the same thing. <laughs> that's no good. <laughs> and it's only one flavor. And if you know what, if, especially if you're somewhere that we've never been before, and we all get stuck with. You know, a dish. I mean, we might all love it, but then also, you know, it's just the flavor of the day, I guess. Oh, and yeah. And it Mar- could go wrong. Marcos anyway. took us back to Cuba Ocho. Oh. We went down to Little Havana and we I'd could say, uh, not oh. be more grateful to them as being just very hospitable and opening up their house and, and their time. And he's and got a side yard where our RV just can yes. fit. Our truck camper can fit right in there. I don't think... As far as luxury, there was a better flow. There was a better place to be where we really felt like we were on vacation. Although we probably worked harder at his place than anywhere else because it was so convenient and conducive to just relaxing and doing work. Mm. Thank you, Marcos. Thank you, indeed. Now, what's our thesis for today, baby? Let's just say, what are we trying to communicate to the dear listener? We want to encourage all educators to help students to view the world clearly which is much more important than learning a so-called worldview. Yeah. And this could be an educator that's a parent, whether or not you homeschool. But the idea is what you're trying to pass on is a way to clearly investigate the world. Mm-hmm. You can, of course, do this with explicit reference to your own perspective on that world. What do you believe and, and how that fits in with how you treat people and how you view the knowledge that you get? Right. But in many ways, for me, I think a follower of Jesus, for instance, will ask this question. This is the data that I have observed Mm -hmm. from a hike. I took a hike. We were, um, you know, hiking and we saw these iguanas and we ask ourselves, even though we think these iguanas are cool, they're invasive. What ought a person of goodwill to do about this? Mm -hmm. That's a question that is a that a question that's going to involve my ethical values, my philosophy, my politics, and, and even my spirituality. But I'm not going to ask whether or not iguanas exist. No, because that's... <laughs> well, wait, you know what I'm saying? I'm not going to filter that through whether or not right. my, my theology allows me to think that there is iguanas or little dragons out there. I have to just receive what my eyes tell me. Yes. And we have a hard time, especially in America in the 21st century. Right now, we found ourselves incredibly unable to me or seemingly unable to really take the facts seriously. And the reason I say this is because we have been traveling and we feel uh, we have noticed that that there are people that are almost living in different universes. And mm-hmm. the same bit of evidence that might come out in the news could be used as evidence to support a worldview of a person over here and then a completely different and opposed worldview over here. And we realize that facts are in in danger (laughs) of becoming irrelevant. Well, and and that's part of it that we can't really argue whether or not, you know, iguanas exist because we saw them. (laughs) And on top of that, nor should we spend all of our time just being mad that iguanas are there mm-hmm. because that's just a waste of time, mm-hmm. right? Like you could figure out what do we do about this? Is this a problem or yeah, is it not? Let's bring you know? five plans to the table. One way I think we can feed ourselves and, and maybe help with world hunger is when we have something like this, wild boar that are invasive. Surplus. Right. If we have these invasive species and we can ethically dispatch them, you know, instead of being worried about the taboo of eating something you've never eaten before, 
you know, is there a way of using this for even cat food? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? I'm pretty sure Bindi would love to eat some iguana, although there were some of those big boys. Some of the male oh, iguanas with their own crazy. alpha testosterone going on. And they were colorful. They're colorful, but it you don't was, want to mess with them guys. They were, no, they were, sir. They were beautiful. Anyway, but, yeah. iguanas just happened to be something we saw. But the point is, we need to teach young people and all of us to recognize what our eyes see. We could be wrong about our interpretation of what our eyes see. But we need to actually pay attention and to trust. That's, that's, a, that's a fundamental thing about this podcast is we want to help religious kids of all ages re-examine whether or not they can trust or should trust their perceptions. And we think that you should. Mm-hmm. We think that you should take your perceptions very, very seriously. But in many ways, worldviews tend to thwart that. Worldviews sometimes say or encourage us to ignore I don't, what we see. Yeah, I don't have a category for this, so um, we just pretend it just doesn't exist. Just, yeah, or, ignore that fact. Or bringing this into my worldview shatters it, mm. and I don't know what to do with that, and so I need to pretend like it doesn't exist mm. or or not allow other people to tell me that it exists. That's a big theme of this episode, that sometimes when we get what we call cognitive dissonance, as we encounter evidence that goes against our systems of thought— we have a hard time incorporating them, and so we, we react with anger yep. and or ignore them. So we've been around Christian education for a couple decades now, you know, and I, I hear the, you know, the term worldview tossed around quite a bit. Can you clarify what is important about the Christian worldview, this concept, and what, you know, a little bit more about this? Yeah, it's, it's something that I think really started to pick up in the, in the 90s. It's been around 90s and the, and the 2000s as a way of justifying and explaining what K-12 through and church-related higher education was about. It was helping young people to understand the Christian worldview and how to defend it against other worldviews, other worldviews like secularism that were seen as threats. Ultimately, what some donors even to Christian higher education and K-12 through schools were interested in was creating educated culture warriors to get into positions of leadership and power so that they could push back against what they saw as a progressive secular agenda. An agenda that threatened family values, religious liberty, by which they meant the ability to continue in their hiring practices and and other practices that were seen sometimes as problematic for the world in general. And so it made sense, but it also, I think, had the ability to backfire. And that is, by training people in a worldview, you do create a, a well, an ideological army. We'll explain what ideology is in a moment. But it was something also that created minds that were not as able to do critical thinking, especially if that critical thinking was going to challenge the worldview owners, the leaders of that particular group that was trying to support and defend that worldview. Now, again, this is in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, often associated with Christian education, K through college. And I think in many ways it comes from a reformed perspective, that is, a Calvinistic American perspective influenced by 
more of a neo-Calvinist Dutch tradition known as presuppositionalism. You don't need to know much about that, but it is this idea that there are the predestined and the reprobate. And the predestined will see the world rightly. They have rightly ordered minds because they have been called by God and the Holy Spirit has opened them to the truth. And then there are the reprobate who close their ears, like in Psalm 58, the deaf adder stoppeth her ears and refuses to hear the voice of the charmer, or the idea that there are the reprobate who do not have ears to hear, and they do not follow the voice of the good shepherd and that sort of thing. And the the idea then was that in this culture war, because they rightly saw that the American scene was one that was greatly divided between people who just were not connecting. They were not seeing each other's perspectives. The idea is that there are some who just don't get it because they are not called and enlightened. They are not the elect of God, and they will never get it. And there's no amount of apologetic argumentation. You can't argue them into the community of faith. They will never see it. You you can see this in in a lot of the uh, the presuppositionalist apologetics, which said, listen, I'm going to respect this other person who doesn't see the world the way I see it. My job is to show the incoherence of your worldview so that you leave me alone. I can never get you to come over to my worldview without the power of the Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to try. And therefore, really all I have to do with young people that are in the faith, people that are part of this covenant community, is to educate them into our way of seeing the world so that they're educated, that they understand the coherence of the Christian system in the face of people who might otherwise be trying to get them to doubt it, right? So when the reprobate come and say, you know, your view of, of creation is, is stupid, we believe in evolution, instead of looking at the evidence for or against an older earth and the evolution of species, you can almost just quickly dismiss this other view mm-hmm. because it's not Christian. It's not the Christian worldview. Of course they don't believe in what I believe, and you don't actually have to take seriously the scientific evidence in that kind of context because you realize that they're seeing it through this other lens, and the people that brought forward this evidence from so-called science that supports Darwinism are obviously the bad guys. Well, they're not trying to be bad, but they're just, their sin darkened. It's uh, In Romans 1, Paul says, the, the truth is suppressed and unrighteousness. So since they are not redeemed, they don't see the world rightly. And so it seems really clear to them that evolution is true. But for me, it's, it's clearly not true because I believe in the Bible and that's my worldview. Your worldview is a different worldview. So instead of doing critical thought, you're just kind of educating young people into that coherent perspective on the world. It makes sense in a certain way from that reformed Calvinistic perspective, maybe not so much for other religious traditions, but that's, I think, where a lot of it develops. Now, what can be dangerous about this? Worldview education instills ideology rather than emphasizing a correct methodology, right? So in other words, in that world, there's a lot of skepticism about science in general. So let me back up here for a second before we use another big word like ideology you got to bear with me here because i'm learning this stuff too so i'm going to ask you a few questions if you don't mind but i did want i did look up worldview um and i saw this definition from oregon state university says a worldview is the set of beliefs about fundamental aspects of reality 
that ground and influence all one's perceiving, thinking, knowing, and doing. One's worldview is also referred to as one's philosophy, philosophy of life, mindset, outlook on life, formula for life, ideology, faith, or even religion. That's a really good one, actually. It's, uh, you know, it, the German concept of Weltanschauung is behind this. It's a wide world perception. That's this, this idea of, of a kind of a comprehensive way of seeing things. And it's important to study them. Mm-hmm. So what we're not saying is that you shouldn't study what a worldview is or what your worldview, worldview is. is. Sometimes by studying your worldview, you can realize how it's affected so much else. Yes. But the idea that you're going to teach a worldview can be dangerous. That's kind of where we're trying to walk this fine And you know, I think the line. other there's another thing, too, that I had heard a quote saying, once you label me, you negate me. And I think that that's an important concept because sometimes we are too often labeling people and they, you know, we slap this idea. Oh, they, they just have this worldview or this idea. So I can discount any evidence they've brought or any perceptions or insights. Right, which may not be. Sometimes we want to box people in just by, you know, the way that they're talking, what they look like or whatever. And I think it's important for us to really listen. So right, you you can't just dismiss somebody because they have they have a label that or you're involves... giving them a label because maybe they've used a term mm-hmm. or a thought you know or said something mm-hmm. and you're like oh I and our brains are hardwired to make shortcuts and when we label ourselves according to a worldview we sometimes then say well I'm not going to go down that avenue there might be things that we could learn but we say well I am this therefore I don't look I don't into do that. X yeah right? I don't do that. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe there's a coherent reason why you don't. But training in worldviews, if it's healthy, would be to say, let's examine the way people see the world and let's compare them. There's a, there's a, there's a way in which comparing mythologies is really, really handy mm-hmm. and really wholesome. But teaching a worldview is, is indoctrination. Well, and I think it's in a lot of ways I see it as sort of like in Star Wars where you're, you're making clones mm-hmm. then. And the problem with it is if all you do have are clones, when another person takes over the army of clones, <laughs> then right. perhaps like for in everybody's worst interest, they, they might all follow the new leader, mm-hmm. right? They didn't understand what, why they had held that worldview. They mm-hmm. didn't understand, you know, the, the importance of mm-hmm. what was going on. And so, yeah, it's really important for us, again, to own our own worldview, not be told by anybody else exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't explain it or you can't explain, you know, like how you got there, how, how you got there, then what's if you can't explain it, then it really isn't who you are. You're just you're in a club that you don't know why you're a part of that club. You're, you're inching towards this idea of ideology. So let me jump in on it. This idea of worldview If you're just asking the question, how do we see things comprehensively? How do we see our our faith, our beliefs, our view of family? How does it all fit together? That's an important question, and it's good to both evaluate and sustain it if it's healthy, but also to understand other people's perspectives and other cultures. Why do they see things the way they do? It's just just handy, and it's, it's, I think, wholesome. But one of the ways in which I'm nervous about the language in Christian education about worldviews is that I think it is actively 
instilling ideology into people. So explain to me, please, and, and, and our dear good listeners, what, it, what exactly do you mean by ideology then? Yeah, ideology here in a very, in a very technical way, but an important way, is best defined, I think, as beliefs and values that control our lives and our understanding of how society should run, even when we don't have clear evidence for these beliefs and values. It is something that we assume. It is something that colors everything that we see. And it's very difficult for us to realize that we're in it. So we all have ideologies. Mm-hmm. And now, is that, how does that compare to, say, biases? Or it's, Well, biases are part of ideologies. And, and I think maybe a way of saying it would be biases are part of the ideology. So if I have a certain ideology, there are various individual biases that'll, that'll play into that. Gotcha. But it's, it's unfounded. It doesn't mean it's necessarily false. It's just, it's just it that... It may not be fact-based. Yeah, and it's, and it's not that we've practiced getting there through an investigation of the facts. So ideology is maybe inevitable, but not necessarily what we want to become free. Right, like people have an ideology, but I think education should help us to examine our ideologies, to reevaluate them in light of evidence that we encounter, people that we meet. We should be constantly in this mutual critique. I am going to say, you know, these are the things that that I find problematic about your ideology. Would you please give me a sense of your understanding of mine and where my blind spots would be? That's a really healthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you're wishy-washy, and it doesn't mean that you are going to just throw everything out as soon as somebody presents a challenge. But ideology is historically very, very dangerous. It's what's for many people caused a great deal of pain. And if worldviews are simply ideologies, in other words, if I am educating you in a particular worldview... If by that we mean I'm educating you into an ideology, then, man, that's that's kind of the opposite of healthy education, it seems to me. So not to throw in another ology, another mm-hmm. big word, but you did mention that um, methodology, teaching mm-hmm. methodology is more important than teaching, say, ideology. Oh, let me give you another ology, so. epistemology, how we know what we know. <laughs> uh-huh. I think the most important thing for people in any educational context is to examine how we get to knowledge and we stick to it. Okay. Now, I'm not telling you how to do that. I can if you want. You can, you know, <laughs> we can have this discussion. But I think that if you're consistent on how you access knowledge, how you evaluate it, then you're in a healthier spot. If you're teaching people what the conclusions should be rather than the way to get to the conclusion, I'm not quite sure you even believe in your conclusions. You just believe in your group. Mm. Right. So to me, the problem or the danger of so-called worldviews education is saying, I'm just going to train you in my cult. That's what it's I mean. That's what it sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that everybody uses it. And I know that some people will have their hackles up because they think, well, what, I've just attacked this kind of sacred cow of, of church related education. But if worldviews are really about instilling an ideology and ideology can be counterproductive, then maybe we shouldn't be instilling worldviews as our primary goal within an educational system. So you mentioned that, that they're difficult to challenge or change the ideology is, right? You mentioned yeah, that. perhaps impossible. So can you give me a couple of examples where you've seen that go wrong? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the two classics from the 20th century would be Stalinist Marxism and Nazi fascism. They're both ideologies, and they're both on totally different sides of the spectrum, mm-hmm. if you think of the world in terms of right and left, rather than decent and mm-hmm. uh, oppressive. Mm-hmm. And, and I think both Stalinist Marxism and Nazi fascism were equally oppressive. You can you know, argue about the numbers. That's just looking at two NFL teams and figuring out, you know, is it 29 to 23? I don't know. Turns out Stalin killed more people than Hitler. You know, there were more people to kill. I don't think that's really a helpful conversation to see which one's worse. Ideology ends up with death. Okay. Okay. It doesn't bring life. Mm -hmm. Because if in the context of ideology, you don't agree with that ideology, then the only two options are you as an individual are stupid and therefore you need to be re-educated. That's Mm -hmm. what, you know, Maoist China does. Mm Mm-hmm re-education camps. We're going to fix your brain. Right, right. Forcefully. (laughs) Or, um, you know, the Nazis taking over the churches and and the schools and the media and so forth. You know, in in both cases, you you have control rather than liberty. And so I I don't really care, you know, if, if it's this version of ideology or that version of ideology, if your ideology is removing my autonomy, not allowing me to, to trust my perceptions, and basically allowing the state to be my new god, well, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. There, are other, there are other forms. And certainly cults can do this. Even mainline religious bodies can do this, you know, depending on what it is. So, so if a worldview, again, if a worldview is trying to inculcate an ideology, it can be dangerous and... If that ideology isn't spiritual but is secular, it still serves this religious role because people want to be a part of a group. They want to be a part of something that's meaningful. They want to be part of a historical movement. And so if that historical movement is the Russian Revolution or if the movement is the Third Reich, it's the same part of our brains that gets tickled. And we want to be part of it and we have a hard time questioning whether or not we're on the right path once we get into it. So as we've been traveling across the United States, one of the things that's hard has been that whatever comes out in the news is received through the filter of an ideology. Mm. So if we're hanging out with hippies, they see everything through that. And if we're hanging out with people who are, say, pro-Trump, they view everything through that. And we're trying to be cordial, but it's terrifying, <laughs> you know, right? Because, because, well, and and their way is, you know, often really seen as the right way, and you know, we're as good as enemies as soon as we yeah. we if don't you, fully get on board with what they're saying, which is really really tough when you're just trying to experience and view the world and and keep your eyes open and be open to what people are thinking and talking about or whatever, but yet they're often not always that open to anybody else's point of view. There's a lot of people we've met who have been incredibly generous. But as you're saying, we have gone on an expedition to view the world. We are traveling across America trying to view the world. And one of the things we're viewing is that people have worldviews. That are all different. And that have closed off to other worldviews. Correct. And that's the part that's dangerous. Of course you're going to have a perspective, but what we've seen is that there have been places and times and radio shows as we're just kind of flipping through terrestrial radio where we realize 
that if I grew up in this particular context, if I grew up with what they grew up with, what other tools do you have? Right. If you've never really been able to learn how to embrace the other side of the story, mm-hmm. you're a slave. And I tell you what, I'm not telling you this to piss you off or to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm trying to give you the keys to liberty. Unlock that part of, of your heart that is that is chained up by somebody else doing your thinking for you. Right. You, you get to think what you think. I want you to think what you think you should think, but I don't want you to think what other people are demanding that you think and because they've trapped you into a worldview. And sometimes that particular worldview is against the person's best interest that we might be talking to. And that leads us to this idea of cultural hegemony. Now, hegemony is about control, often associated with the Aegean Peninsula, where you have one city-state, one, one, you know, Sparta, Athens, whatever, you have influence over other regions, other islands within Greece. But it's been applied, and it's often associated with Marxist thought. Now, I'm not talking now about... Chairman Mao or Joseph Stalin. I'm just talking about university professors who talk about Marxist theory. And I will say that this presents a problem for us, especially in America, where we have still the remembrance of life under the Cold War, during Mm -hmm. the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And so anything that is Marxist must be bad. Notice this is also how ideology works. The best criticism of Marx is that the way forward might not have worked. Mm. And maybe nobody's figured that out yet. So what's the way forward? This is the big problem for societies in the 21st century. But his observations are often right, that people have been kind of detached from the work that they do. They're just slaves within a machine. They are no longer able to ask, what is this creation giving to society? Now they're just rented. Right. And people don't like being rented. That's dehumanizing. So that's Mm -hmm. a good point. There are all sorts of good points. And one of the points is made by this guy, Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci was Italian, as you might expect. He was a Marxist philosopher. He lived from 1891 to 1937. And he was looking at this kind of cultural theory. And that's why, by the way, many people in the social sciences are interested in Marxism as a way of viewing the world, unpacking the world, criticizing or giving a critique of the world. And for him, Antonio Gramsci, this idea of cultural hegemony is the idea that there's a a ruling class. It could be racial, it could be regional, you know, New Yorkers versus people in in Kentucky, it could be white people versus or over black people. It could be various things. But it's the idea that there's this domination, this power over other people mm-hmm. and that these people are best controlled through ideological manipulation, right? Okay. So we've been interested on this show in that I- idea or that line from Bob Marley, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. Emancipating yourself from mental slavery is helping to free yourself not just from the system as it is practically, going to school, getting a nine-to-five job or whatever, but it's the beliefs and the values and the, the system, the system we call Molech or Babylon, mm-hmm. that gives us a worldview, a worldview that is shared by those in power. Okay. In other words, sometimes what a worldview is about is people in power. Trying to maintain their power. By getting you to think in a way. That may be disadvantageous. 
disadvantageous to your own self. Using God and your eternal salvation sometimes uh, mm-hmm. as a way to, because to, if God says this, mm-hmm. then how do I argue against that? Right. It must be. And sometimes their interpretation of what God says right. is flawed. This is where religion gets caught up in it. And so in many cases, in communist countries in the 20th century, religion was outlawed. The Soviet Union, people died for their faith. In Cuba, it wasn't until the 90s that religious practice was allowed again. The reason is that in this way of seeing the world, Christianity had kept people down. And the way it kept people down was saying, that you are being screwed by the economic system that you find yourself in. But don't worry, when you get to the next life, you'll be rich. Mm. See? Mm-hmm. And so by getting rid of religion, what Marx called the opiate of the masses, right? Like it's a way of numbing yourself. Religion can numb you from the reality that you're screwed by the system. Mm-hmm. That's what's, what's really behind it. Now, I think that that what we found in the subsequent decades is that that's not necessarily the way it works. But there is that connection between official religion and economic wealth, right? So mm-hmm. people that are rich and the people that are in power as bishops or, you know, whatever, whatever it could be, pick your religion. There are often cases in which church and state are embedded. Mm-hmm. And the reason they are is because the church can help people find a way of dealing with their oppression Mm. instead of liberating them from their their oppression, oppression. which is really sad because Jesus starts this thing out by challenging a lot of these oppressive systems, but then it gets co-opted by the people in power. Well, and if you even think about when we're trying to bring our theology or our Christianity to a place, we're also tying that into other ways of life that we then want to change about how they're they're living mm-hmm. and i don't think that our theology needs to necessarily change their culture yeah there were stories where where victorian missionaries would put bras on the uh the savages quote unquote yeah and, and it would create lust in people because they're saying what, what, what are you doing like you're doing a strip tease now you're just hanging out <laughs> right so but you're trying to you're trying to cover people up you're trying to bring Where, not just the teachings of Jesus but also now something European you did, prudish culture yeah and something you did culturally which wasn't looked at in that way for them you know it, it, it switches it it turns it into something that um, was yeah never meant to be in that society I think I guess what I'm trying to say is that the way the way that we house ourselves and clothe ourselves and do our hair or whatever it doesn't like that's not part of what the the Bible says necessarily. So but it's associated with it. Right. right? So then So now you're bringing you're bringing here here's these here are these liberating teachings of Jesus mm-hmm. but it's packaged in a certain aesthetic a certain set of economic values, mm-hmm. right? You want to be part of this Jesus movement. Also, you're going to want to wear these clothes, embrace this commercial Build society. This, this church structure. That's another yeah. thing. We've often, in Taos, we heard how the missionaries would come, but then force the local people to build the building where they're going to worship in. Yeah. Yeah, we were, we were in, the, uh, in the Taos uh, Pueblo. The Pueblo people up there in New Mexico, they're pretty groovy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, just just 
I mean, I'm talking about groovy before anybody showed up, right? Now, all of a sudden, you've got the quote-unquote Christians coming with their guns and their lust for gold and their helmets and saying, hey, we want to teach you about Jesus, and we're going to do it in a building that we're going to enslave you to build. Yes. That, That's, didn't, that didn't need to be part of it. Mm-hmm. They didn't need to have the building. And then on top of yeah, that... Yeah, but they did need to have the building because the building was the place where they were going to get the worldview that was going to allow them to stay subjugated. You see? So the reason... And it's not that every missionary was intentionally doing this, but what the missionaries were doing to the First Nations people in, in, in Canada or in uh, or the Aboriginal people in Australia, part of it was... By bringing them into Christianity, you are bringing them also into this European worldview that may not have been a Jesus worldview, but it had the logo of Jesus on it. Well, and then the other thing that was really sad about the story in Taos... So in Taos, there was an uprising of the indigenous people, and then this was temporarily successful, and this created a backlash. So missionaries and... The, the Spanish powers came in, and then they, as they came up to Taos, what did they do? Then they come and go into refuge in the church, and, and it was supposed to be— The indigenous people hid in the church that they were supposed, forced to build by the Christians. But it was supposed to be that this is a free zone, this is sanctuary, so that the church was supposed to be a sanctuary. Yeah. But instead, they went ahead and also bombed that. The so-called Christian powers forced these people— into a new religion. They force them to build a temple to the new religion. When they come to wage war on the rebellious indigenous people who are uncomfortable or unhappy with their subjugation, they run into the temple of that religion and that also gets bombed. You know, how cynical is that? Right. How in- disingenuous is that? I'm not saying that Christian educators are wrong in their interest in following the way of Jesus and teaching the way of Jesus to kids. What I am saying is that it's very hard to notice when you are actually serving a tyrant or an unhealthy power that is actually working against the best interest of the individual students, right? So you you could be a missionary, you could be a Christian school teacher, and you're doing all you can to help them be happy and, and free and find joy in their lives, but you could potentially be serving to make them good servants of the powers that be, the evil powers that be, the state, the structure itself that might be causing them to work against their best interest. So we've said this, worldview, worldview is an overall, worldview is an overall way of seeing the, you know, a worldview is the way of seeing the world. And of course we all have one. The idea that we've suggested here is that we should teach people how to properly view the world through critical thinking rather than giving them all the conclusions. Because once you do, then if some bad person comes along and then says, now I'm the new leader and I'm going to tell you what that is, you could have a hostile takeover of an army of clones, think like the Star Wars Clone Wars, that you know, you had the stormtroopers that were created to serve the Republic, and all of a sudden, Palpatine and the mm-hmm. dark side take over the clones, mm-hmm. and they become the bad guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the most interesting things about the Star Wars mythology, is that the, that the clones were created for good, and they were usurped, they were taken By over for side. evil. And that's why I'm suggesting, that's why Stacy and I are suggesting to you, that we should rethink this emphasis on worldviews education because by training people in quote-unquote worldviews, we're, we're training them to be clones perhaps 
rather than to think for themselves. If we believe that we have the truth, then people who know how to think for themselves will come along with us and find the, the truth. The truth does not need to be defended. Not in that way, not in that heavy-handed way. If the truth is true, then teaching people how to find truth is going to get them where they need to be. And if we trust in that, if we deeply trust in that, then we are going to be in a much safer place and we're going to avoid some of the bloodshed and the dangers of the 20th century. Now, here's another thing, though, Stacey. We've got two ways of thinking about worldviews and dangerous ideologies. So version one, that is something cruel is part of the cultural landscape. Right. So this, this is the idea that our worldview includes evil things like s- slavery of African Right. Captives mm-hmm. in the American South. It's a bad thing, but we don't think it's bad because it's part of our worldview. Mm-hmm. It could also be something like female genital mutilation, which mm-hmm. I don't want to dwell on because it's, it's so horrific. But basically, it scars a young woman's genitals and then sews her up in such a way that she can be guaranteed to be a uh, virgin. Mm-hmm. So that she does not feel sexual pleasure and therefore isn't threatening to have an affair. Right, she's not tempted to... She does not have her own sexuality. Her sexuality is owned. Mm -hmm. I mean, just horrific. But there are societies where this is an important part of the process of growing up. This is a rite of passage. The people who tend to perform the actual procedure are women. And they're often... They think they're looking out for the best interest of the, the female. And when... NGOs, that is non-governmental organizations, come in and try to get people not to do it. They say, hey, listen, please, let's, let's change our ways here. It is folks who say, no, I need to continue this practice because if we don't, the world will end. That's how a worldview works, that if we don't continue this practice, the world will end. And in a way, they're right. That is, the minute you ch- change that practice... If a, if a society of a village no longer practices female genital mutilation, that's just a, a figurative stone's throw from starting to wear Western clothes, working at Walmart, and buying Pepsi, you know, mm-hmm. with half of an hour's salary, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a connection, and they recognize this. And so they see that if, if they give up this cultural practice, then the whole thing might start to unravel, and that's true. And that's how insidious this whole business is right right and so that's the first part there's a second part there's a or there, there's a second version of the way in which worldviews and ideologies can be dangerous so that's when something cruel is not explicitly part of the cultural landscape but challenging it will then also end that world right so so you might say that somebody in your society has done something bad or to take it to our, our main focus for the podcast, religious leaders did something wrong. But your whole world is based on the importance of this religion. Mm-hmm. So if it turns out that you have to admit that the religious leader did something bad, we've already discussed on previous episodes how hard it is for people to challenge bad religious leaders because it, it threatens the thing that they've based their whole lives on. This is actually at play here. That is, if what the religious leader did is bad and you know that it's bad, you might still not deal with that problem because to take out the religious leader might be to destroy everything that you hold dear about your world. Your whole world will fall apart. Well, or 
also the good that you think it's doing. Right. You know, for other people, for yourself. I mean, there's all sorts sorts of things. It just stops the whole thing in the tracks. And, and it might be worth it to you to put up with a little bit of, you know, some bad decisions or or evil actions even right. for the greater good of what you think the cause is. But again, in this case, the greater good is the world not ending. Let me give you one example. Bikram Chowdhury. Bikram yoga, that's associated with hot yoga. We keep threatening to do it. Eventually, we'll mm-hmm. talk about ways to steer clear of danger in the world of yoga. But Bikram is a creeper mm-hmm. for what we can tell. You know, yeah, if you, he would, if you he would adjust people and touch them inappropriately and go further. I mean, basically, once yeah. you kind of buy into his whole system, I mean, the, the leaders have a lot of power, right. you know, a lot of influence. And he used it to his own advantage. Yeah. Now, and the harm of the people that studied his practices. Now, we've talked about this on the show that there are ways in which, say, meditation can be very powerful. So then somebody can teach you meditation. It works so well for you that you think that they're the ones who have the keys to meditation. And then you trust them when you shouldn't. And mysticism can be very powerful, powerful magic. And so that we were talking about this on the show when we talked about the farm and how dangerous it would be if somebody misused the power of that experience. Well, in the same way, you find this with with this yoga, right? So somebody might have had a real traumatic life. They found yoga. They then trusted deeply in yoga because it was healing. And because of this, however, they ran into a problem. And the problem is there's somebody doing something naughty. They don't challenge it because they think, if I challenge Bikram Chowdhury, the the founder... The whole system has to go out the door. But it doesn't. There's all sorts of other yoga out there. In fact, I've never been to a Bikram yoga. (laughs) I'm not even that big of a fan of hot yoga. I mean, you know, it's fine. It's its own experience. But the idea that it has to be hot... And then some people swear by it, too. Yeah, no, it's (laughs) fine. But I mean, but the idea that that this guy is the one who gets to control heat and yoga, (laughs) if it's an ancient tradition and hot is just hot, then this guy doesn't get to own that any more than (laughs) your pastor or priest gets to own the Holy Spirit, right? I had a similar experience in England where I met a guy who was studying at the graduate level at Oxford, and he was getting real smart about theology. You know, he was becoming woke. Uh, We wouldn't have used the term at the time about all sorts of things, but he had a problem. He was still devoted to a really nefarious televangelist hmm. and none of us could understand it yeah like, why? Like, why would you why would you yeah be devoted to him and he was very candid one night he said here's my problem he said there was a time when i was associated with what he was doing and i was slain in the spirit being slain in the spirit you know it's like you've got this the holy spirit this anointed dude comes <laughs> along and, and 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 gives you the juice and you fall down and it was a very powerful moment and it changed his life so that before he was going through this experience, he was sad, and now he was happy. Before he had no meaning, now he had meaning. Before he was lost, and now he felt really connected. So he confused the power of what was happening with the person that carried, or that that power worked through. Yeah, but he thought, and he said this explicitly to me, if I deny the power and the legitimacy of what he was doing, then I'm no longer saved. Hmm. Now he knew that he was critical about this, but he was just, again, being honest. He was saying that it, and it, and it would make me feel the same way. 
am I just fooled about the whole thing? Have I wasted six years of graduate school on something that was based on a fraudulent act by a hustler, right? So if he were to admit that this guy was a hustler, and I think he had deep suspicions that the guy was a hustler, and he was probably realizing that being slain in the spirit might have some kind of hypnotic aspects to it, some kind of carnival Mm -hmm. trick, that maybe everything else in his life was gone, that his world would shatter based on that. Now, friends, just because you got to a good space you know, hitchhiking with a bad person or on a road that you shouldn't have taken. It, it doesn't matter how you got to where you're healthy and happy. If you're healthy and happy, observe that, recognize that, and even be grateful for the ways that you got there, even if they're otherwise bad ways. Yeah. Please remember that these religious wolves are out there, but they've tapped into something really powerful, but that doesn't, like, that doesn't discount the experience and the help and the healing that you've received. Hear this again, friends. Hear it clearly. A bad person might have taught you to jog, and jogging has changed your lifestyle. You can keep jogging and recognize that that person who taught you to jog was unhealthy for you. And yes, and that <laughs> it's okay for you to decide that I don't need to be around that teacher anymore. Yeah. I think Zen meditation was helpful for the musician Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. And he had to come to terms with the guy who taught him Zen meditation, his Roshi in Mount Hood, California, turned out to be an abusive guy. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that what he found wasn't helpful for him. Right. And I can't emphasize this enough because I think that's what keeps people in bondage. This is how people stay in bad relationships. Yeah. We need love. So mm-hmm. you get love from somebody. That doesn't mean they get to pick on you. They don't, they don't get to cause you pain 80% of your life just so that you can still have that happiness for 20%. Right. No, you can you can still be in, in charge of that. Anyway. So uh, this, this is starting to sound awfully bleak <laughs> in a large way. Is there, are there any healthy versions of uh, religious worldview education? Is there models or, or a way to do this that actually is, is life-giving? I think so. I would prefer that we don't use worldviews as the primary concept, mainly just because of how it's been used by, by religious groups to essentially force people to all think alike. Okay. But that's just my, you know, that's my experience. If it hasn't been that for you, then feel free to use worldviews because it makes sense. We have a view of the world. We have perspectives on the world. We want well, to value. deny that yeah. that exists actually is a problem as well. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's going to influence. I'm not saying you should do. never use the word worldview or never talk about worldviews. I'm saying that your primary goal isn't to indoctrinate somebody into a worldview. But here's the flip side. You cannot really understand knowledge outside of this. There's a, a really important philosopher and ethicist, Alistair McIntyre. And McIntyre writes this important book called After Virtue. And he rightly argues that there are really no tradition-neutral investigations. That is, whenever you're going to look at any piece of data, you're always bringing your tradition and your worldview with you. That's totally true. You've got a paradigm. But you've got to ask, is it the right bias? Is mm-hmm. it the right paradigm? That's all I'm saying. And just because Evaluate. you found, and because you find some things, I'm imagining, <laughs> just because you find some things good or, or that you can identify with or healthy with something doesn't mean you have to take their whole worldview. If, you're fine, if you appreciate um, a certain 
philosophy or a teaching or whatever. It doesn't mean you have to buy the entire system. Right. I enjoy meditation, but I don't have to go and Hindu. Yes, I don't <laughs> have to go and, and be a Hindu. You could say, hey, wait a minute, maybe be- Christians should get more interested in the proper forms of meditation. You can you can notice what these treasures are. Another thing is that we also have to say that that there is a community and a story within that community. So that actually one of the most important things, say if you're a Christian educator, is to communicate the narrative of your Christian community. For instance, why do some Christians especially in the early church, call each other brother and sister. Now, I saw online there was a young woman who had been abused, and she said, I, I, I don't like it when people call each other brother and sister because it reminds me of a world where those people were bad. Mm. So I understand, then, then jettison it. You don't need to do that. But there was a time in the ancient church where people were considered slaves. And when a former slave owner called a slave brother, that was powerful. Right. That's the worldview that you do want to teach. Mm -hmm. In other words, you model it. What Christian education, if it has any role in society that's healthy, should be, is letting people come into a sanctuary, coming into a college that doesn't judge people on how, quote unquote, successful they are, how sexy they are, how how intelligent they are, just loves them unconditionally. Letting people experience that world firsthand is incredibly healing. A world where you are saying, here is our story about folks who have been lost and now they're found. People who have been saved by bad ways of thinking, Mm -hmm. self-destructive behaviors, modeling graciousness. So if you have a community, if if you have a classroom where... Where, let me give you an example. Urawa Lutheran School. Mm-hmm. I got to observe them. That was in Japan. In Japan, just north of Tokyo. Really cool. Mm, a small percentage of people are actual Christians there. But they embody a Christian worldview, if you must use that term. By which I mean, a lot of the kids were bullied in the other schools. Mm. And they came to a place where they were following the way of Jesus by not bullying. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is good. There was a world where if they failed, they couldn't be forgiven. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things that a lot of the young people that I met and the teachers really in Japan uh, that are educators and and students said to me that that they live in a a very high-pressure world where everything's really clean and everyone's really doing well. So Christianity doesn't make a lot of sense in that if you think you're a, a poor wretch of a sinner... Most of them don't feel like poor wretches of sinners. They're, they're doing their work mm-hmm. and they're successful and their families are successful and they're clean and, and, and everything's going well unless they make a mistake. And if they make a mistake, there's no hope. Mm. And so, uh, or for a person who's not an A-plus student. Right. So for me, a Christian school that embraces the kid who's a C student, that's a Christian worldview I like seeing in practice. Mm-hmm. It's... The way I'd like to think of it is a world where we have a narrative that we share about a Christian perspective on the world and a world where we treat people with unconditional love. If that's what Christian education is, and of course, sharing the story of Jesus and and, and teaching 
story. Right. Well, and these are Jesus' teachings. Yeah. <laughs> and and being literate in, in the Bible and all this, this is great. But But that's different to me than forcing people to think in a certain way, but inviting them to see how beautiful it is. Because I tell you what, one of the ways that a lot of people in this Japanese school including teachers, were attracted to and, in fact, sometimes became baptized into a Christian community. What drew them in was a Christian way of being. You'll know they're Christians by their love. You'll know they're Christians by the way we see each other. It was a whole different way of looking at life, right? Where Uh, uh success wasn't measured with the same standards as what the rest of their society was telling them. So if a Christian worldview means we see orphans and widows as our nieces and our aunts, then I'm all signed up. If a Christian worldview is allowing an authoritarian leader to tell us how to think about our own sexual lives and our own political and economic lives without reflection, without critical thought. That's just oppressiveness. Nope, not having that. Jettison that, right? And I think think that's that's a good place, I think, to bring us to a close in this first segment because for the most part, we're not telling you not to to be deeply embracing the world, we're telling you to reflect on it. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, especially, I have been so frustrated by Christian education. I've been a part of it for so long. But one of the reasons I'm still interested in following Jesus is that I've always seen the way of Jesus as a way that is really, really bold. I'm a fan of the Japanese theologian Kazo Kitamori. He's actually a Lutheran, believe it or not. Very, very few Christians in Japan very few Lutherans in Japan, but Kazo Kitamori, he challenged Buddhists by saying, Buddhists, you're not wrong. Suffering is suffering's a problem. And he had compassion on this idea that people would want to remove themselves from suffering through a way of following the Buddha in a kind of detachment okay. by stopping desire. But he suggests, and I'm with him on this, that Christians move towards people. We desire people in a holy way. Holy desire causes us to love God and therefore to love our neighbor. And as we love our neighbor, our neighbors are often a mess (laughs) and they will hurt us. So by going towards our neighbor, we find that trying to heal them is going to get us to suffer. We're going to suffer. And he suggested that, that in many ways Buddhism is removing ourselves. Certainly, it's true in some teachings in Taoism. One of the, the ones, one, one of the teachings that troubles me in Lao Tzu, though I think in a future episode maybe we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit more, Lao Tzu says you can't change the world. Hmm. Don't try to change the world. I think the Christian worldview, if I can use that language, is that we're trying to change the world. Mm-hmm. The Christian worldview, the Christian worldview is about this effort to heal the world, not just ourselves. I wrote a book, Sexy, The Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times. And in that book, I speak favorably of Lao Tzu and Taoism. I think I don't give Buddhism a fair shake because I lump it all together. I, as an academic, have focused on Theravada Buddhism, the old original teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. But I'm I'm really challenged by Mahayana Buddhism and some forms of it, specifically uh, Jodo, Jodo Shinshu, uh, pure land Buddhism, forms of Mahayana Buddhism that are really for everybody that have this idea of a bodhisattva. 
And I have to say, I love the idea of a bodhisattva. I would say I would love it if if young Christians thought of themselves as training to be bodhisattvas <laughs> for Jesus, if that made sense. Or just bodhisattvas, which is this. The bodhisattva is one who takes a vow at the end of a long road towards enlightenment or a short, short road. Enlightenment, seeing things as they really are, being liberated from the panic of existence, finding peace. One can then pass on into nirvana. You could just leave this world. Mm. You could say, I found the right way. I'm out of here. <laughs> the bodhisattva says, I am not going to give up until everybody else right. gets to taste and see this truth. The bodhisattva takes this vow that is spontaneous. It's born out of compassion. And it's a compassion that says, I don't want to leave any sentient being behind. There are even some who make vows like this. I vow not to go to heaven so long as anyone's in hell. Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm translating right. it for the Christian right. idiom, but that's basically it. And I think, you know, to the, to the extent that there is a form of Buddhism that's interested in, a, in an activism, in a compassion for people who are suffering, and an advocacy, then, then, I'm, then I'm applauding that. I've said in the book that there is too much of a distance or people withdrawing from activism in Buddhism. I certainly think that that's true in some forms of Hinduism or, or many forms of Hinduism where you, you would find the idea that karma has got somebody into a situation so you kind of let them work it out on their own. Mm. There's even an element that you said that that's true too. Like let, don't try to control them but let them find themselves or find their way to truth. But at the same time, those of us who have found peace, I think really do have an invitation to help others find peace. The art is figuring out how to do it without forcing. Right. You can't just, you know, you can't exert your, your will over it. Or If you try to control people, it's painful for you and for them. Right. You think it's for their own good. When you don't have the process involved, when you don't, it, it's not enough just to have the right multiple choice answer. <laughs> you need to... To life's questions. Yeah, to life's questions in general. It, there's There's something that happens that can change you when you're been, when you're able to experience it mm-hmm. and then see it all of a sudden for yourself. Right. And that's the, the repentance that you mentioned. It's like a whole new, it's like a wake up of a whole new way of understanding the world and, and how you're going to live life. So we've been talking <laughs> a lot in this, this world of ologies and all this, and I think it's really out there, but for... Academic speak. <laughs> Ivory Tower stuff. Sorry, friends. But for me, I guess, in a way to kind of bring this, I don't know, at least down to earth for myself, is that, you know, I, I hear of echo chambers. So I know that we, we selectively, you know, surround ourselves around things that have, and, and people and, and ways of thinking that we seem to identify with. Mm-hmm. There's also this phenomenon that's happening in the internet, and it's called filter bubbles. I have not heard of that. And that's a little different. I know about echo chambers. Well, too well, you know it, you just haven't heard the term because yeah. basically what it is, is so it's, it's using algorithms to then decide what content that is going to come before you on your social media feed. So when you get certain advertisements or you purchase something or whatever, they're going to see the kinds of things that you've liked mm-hmm. on the internet, uh, the, the maybe keywords that you might've used or searched for, and then they're going to throw material at you 
that will be connected to that. So then it looks like every time you're online that perhaps everybody is seeing the same advertisements. You or, think the world is like that. Right, where yeah. it's kind of a, a little subgroup that you might have, you're, you get divided up into mm-hmm. as somebody that might appreciate this sort of either this product or even this, you know, to recommend any sorts of, say, I don't know, podcasts or whatever, mm-hmm. like things like that will come up because you've looked and researched into certain things. So it reinforces a worldview, whether it's healthy or not. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so the important part is, is to realize that this is, this does happen as much as you are able to, I think, you know, going around and traveling, at least you're able to sort of witness the difference in America, even the different subgroups that do exist because mm-hmm. they do. And I don't know what your little subdivision is, but just realize that there is a broader world out there and that you are being fed, filtered yeah. information based on things that you've said you liked or not. So maybe even, you know, all of a sudden go and experience something new that you've never done in your local community, uh, maybe related to a, a culture that you've <laughs> never really been a part of or something just to sort of broaden your what you're, you're being introduced to. It's a healthy thing just to, just to double check whether or not what you're thinking about the world is shared by by everybody else. And sometimes I I even just saw a post that somebody on Facebook was saying that you are repeatedly seeing the information of about 30 different people in your friend group and that yeah. you're not even getting access to to the whole group. to your whole friend group. Yeah. <laughs> and and so that is another way of doing it because they think you oh you've liked this so you might like what this person is saying with mm-hmm. these keywords. And so even in your own news feeds that are coming up yeah. it might only be a, a small select group within that. Yeah. And difference is scary. It can be very scary. Travel can be unsettling. Going into places that are, are new can be can be taxing emotionally, especially for certain personalities. But it's really important. We've said it over and over. That's why we're traveling. That's why we're encouraging people to travel. If you don't have enough money to travel far, that's fine. We've said it before. But but you've got to find ways to get off of social media at times. I think social media can be helpful enough. But you've got to be able to find ways to experience and listen to other people. And I'll tell you what, one of the ways we found this is as we're driving through the middle of nowhere, listening to radio shows. And it's been terrifying to us <laughs> because we realized that if we lived in a world where all we had was that source of information, mm-hmm. then we'd be missing things. And maybe I'm missing things with the stuff that I consume. But we've really come to a place where the media we consume is pre-screened. Yeah. I mean, I well, do it myself. Even- I'm, I'm, you know, I'm watching MSNBC because I'm comfortable as I fall asleep. I don't want to be uncomfortable. As I, as I flip on other news channels or mm-hmm. listen to the radio, I'm, I'm terribly irritated because I'm thinking, well, th- this is... Th- this is propaganda. Well, and even <laughs> but in, how do you know if something's propaganda unless you spread, you know, spread yourself a little wider? Right. And in certain countries, they even will filter the search engines. Certain so you, countries, <laughs> so you can't even you can't even look up something, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. that is not approved by the government. We've been in those countries, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and you got to get a VPN, and even then, it's it's uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're wondering what happens. So, friends, it's a it's a challenge. It's hard to do. I'll tell you what, though, actual flesh and blood human beings who share values of family and the kids and good food get out there meet some folks 
get out of your head sometimes. Maybe even go to a bookstore and see what books are out there <laughs> like in certain physical. categories. I don't know. But even then, right? <laughs> then, you go, yeah, you go to a New Age bookstore. That's all you're going to get. You go to a Christian bookstore. You get, you know. Yeah. Are there Christian bookstores anymore? They used to just start to sell like the Precious Moments dolls. I'm digressing. Friends. Anyway, yes. Thanks for uh, indulging so us. So how does this all relate to our, our interview with our dear friend, Marcos, coming up here? Well, here at the break, I'm going to play a song by our friend Scott Brabson. Scott Brabson. Rabson put together a little demo a few years back, and I asked him, I kind of begged him if I could use some of it. If you've got some music, we'd love to share your music with the world. People listen around the world. You can you can share that art, and that'd be great. You can also go into iTunes or whatever you use to get your your podcasts and review us. Yes, please. And like us. That'd be and very helpful. Nice. Share you know, it with click, a friend. Click stars. Thank maybe you very five much. Five would, uh, would be... It's not that hard. <laughs> Uh, Wonderful. You, you can you can share a podcast episode with a friend. You can click through a couple of the ads that we have for Boondockers Welcome and for Harvest Host. If you're interested in signing up in either of those instead of going directly to the website, these are for people that can travel around the country in RVs and you want to stay somewhere for free or or a van with a with a toilet. And you can do that by going to protectyournoggin.org. And it's really helpful if you would follow us on. On Instagram, we're doing these travels, but it's harder to find us because we're at a different, we have a different name there. Our handle is Dow Surfers. That's with a T, T-A-O, Surfers, Dow Surfers. That's where you can see the places that we are from time to time as we travel around this uh, this world. This last six-month period, we've been traveling around the United States of America. We're going to be skirting right towards uh, Ciudad Juarez in a little bit, and I'm not sure if we're going to pop in to Mexico, but we do want to get back to see our babies, so maybe that'll be for a different trip. But if you follow us at Dow Surfers, then uh, on Instagram, you can kind of see some of that overland travel that we do. And then if you follow us at Twitter, we've we've shifted because we were on a couple different handles on Twitter, but we really would love it if you would be a part of the conversation in real time at the PYNP, at the PYNP on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, and that will help us out a lot because we'd love to communicate with you better. And I've had so many folks interacting with me through my old Facebook and Twitter accounts, but we want to get everybody over to this new Twitter account. So if you would, that'd be really handy. So we're going to go. The bump, the music in between here, the intermission music, is going to be from Scott Brabson. After that, we're going to be hearing from Marcos Ruiz of the... El Lector podcast, a really cool podcast that you should check out as well. And he's going to be talking with us about the ways in which all of this stuff, worldviews, hegemony, and ideology, was able to transform a whole island country for the worst. Lovesick burn bears his burden to the mass. his song to anyone who will listen back oh, oh. he sings his song with his heart on his tongue with a faded photograph in his sock
Miami's one of those places every time I visit, I ask myself why it's been so long. Mm. Especially when it's been cold up in the mountains. We, we got run out, it became nine degrees up in the mountains near Colorado, and so we just said uh, we're going to make a beeline, Stacy and I. And Jeff wanted more of a tropical, uh, last minute sort of summer type experience. So, who lives right? in the most cool, <laughs> tropical, lifey, life giving place in this country? <laughs> My man, Marcos. Marcos Ruiz. How are you doing? I'm great, Jeff. Great. It has been... We saw you in New York a while back, but the big thing is it's been... How long since we went to uh, Cuba together? When did we go? My daughter, Racky's here, too. When did we go to Cuba? That that was 2016. No, no, it wasn't 2016. It was 2018. 2018. Was it last year? Last year. Yeah, it was... February? I think it was February of last year, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's right. A yeah. lot has happened. Yes. <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah. That's something else. That's right. Yeah. We went out there, and uh, and I just had a blast. I know your daughter had a blast. The mm-hmm. folks that came with us, we just had so much fun. Um, I won't. I, a lot of the things we can't, you know, share. I will say that I somehow found myself in possession of some cigars. Yeah, and I like that part <laughs> of the story. And I had a, had a, just a blast. First of all, following you two around to essentially the ruins of another era yeah. when when there were these homes that you could imagine almost like uh, did, there's a video game called Silent Hill oh yeah I remember that one and yeah. in Silent Hill creepy there's, it's yeah. a creepy one and every once in a while there's a level that looks like the city but it's the, the zombie version of the city yeah. and so I saw this this place that was like from a movie or, or a picture book or something that was partly frozen in time and partly in yeah. ruins, you know. Yeah. And so, but anyway, so I, that was interesting. It was heavy, but it was it was really fascinating for me. And also fascinating for me was checking out what churches were doing because mm-hmm. that's you know close to my my professional life. Yeah. And uh, it had been outlawed, and then now this is kind of what the church looks like when it's reemerging and so forth. So I had a fun time. So so then I I, I come and I see you. I'm so excited to see you. Your family. Your beautiful place. There is palm trees, a pool, you've got iguanas. <laughs> i got a peregrine falcon wind kite because it scares the iguanas away. And you've and got our, like this night's and table. And our dog, Betty, is just t- loving the backyard, chasing after creature after creature. How do you just it's not so sit alive. out here all day and forget what day it is? You know, I mean, it's just so yeah. beautiful. It's gorgeous. But uh, you've got this beautiful long table. You could get all the nights out. Yeah. But you're, you're getting, you know, you, you weren't exactly thrilled, you told me. With, with our trip. What, what were your feelings about it? Yeah, so, like, well, let me just, so today, um, mm-hmm. we, we went to Cuba with, with a group of guys. We went with, with uh, our friend Dan, and I went with, uh, we, with some other friends of mine. One of them is Roland, um, and a few other guys that he brought along. We also, of course, we, we took uh, my daughter Raquel. 
and it was her first time visiting. So it was a lot going on, especially, you know, two, two things about that trip. One, I was going to take two guys from out uh, west, western, west coast of the United States yeah. <laughs> who, who are in, the, are in uni- academic circles, uh, who, in my opinion, or the way I see it, uh, are always exposed to a, 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 a narrative of the Cuba story that's very surface that's it's almost it's that's opaque a, really. right. it's yeah, probably surface but it's yeah it's yeah and, but also that celebrates the revo- the Cuban revolution that oh, celebrates yeah. that that celebrates Che Guevara a lot of Che Guevara t-shirts right. even in Christian circles yeah so I was saying I was saying man this will be a great opportunity what if I could take a couple guys to, to Cuba and I had already taken one other uh, uh, a, a guy who I'd become friends with uh, Pete Alwinson I had taken him of, uh, like two years before and, and it was a great experience but he kind of gets the Cuba story because he spent some time in South Florida. Um, but, um, you know, for, for me, taking you guys out was going to be a treat because I was going to show you a different side of Cuba. But then there was a, there was a thing. Uh, we had had, uh, I had heard you, you and Dan talk about uh, when, when Cuba died, when Castro died. Right. And, and you guys had a very rational, a very balanced take on, on the Cuba situation. And I appreciated you even Good. more. <laughs> right, I was nervous when, you, when so I said, oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, Marcos is Cuban-American. What are we going to do if I screw this one up? Then, no, then afterwards I said, well, l- I, I got to take these guys to Cuba. You know, that was before I'm we so had glad, even yeah. thought about that trip. Yep. So uh, there was that opportunity to be able because every time I can share the, 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 you know, our story, my family's story, not just the, what you see on TV, I was, it's, you know, it's a great thing. Then um, the, the 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 best thing was being able to take Raquel, who who hadn't, who, you know, she's a, what are you, second generation, Cuban American, well, Chile, Chilean Cuban, but she's got a lot of that Cuban streak in her because of where we live and and my influence because I'm I'm a I'm a history buff and I'm very much into our heritage, so taking her along was a was going to bring be that all to life. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So we had. All these great elements, and then we were going to go down, and um, and uh, we were going to not just like uh, smoke cigars and stuff. We were going to go down, and, and I had a very clear vision of what I wanted to do at one point before going, and it had to do with you mentioned ruins, yeah. And uh, there was this whole uh, what I wanted to show you guys, and uh, what I wanted to be able to talk about w- w- about afterwards and while we were there was this idea of. Um, that was put forth by a, a Cuban author ages ago, and right now I can't remember his name because it's late at night and we're smoking cigars and drinking bourbon. We will find it. <laughs> friends. You can go to protectyournoggin.org and yeah. go to the show notes. We will both link to Virtue in the Wasteland podcast. We will also link to El Lector podcasts, and you can uh, catch up on some of those themes that we may be repeating somewhat here. So Aponte was his last name. I remember that. And uh-huh. he wrote a book called uh, the, the Art of Creating Ruins. And, and what he did was he, it's, it's out of print, but um, he, he basically said his, his take on it was that in a way, the ruins in Havana are a reflection, are intentional mm-hmm. by a, a, a government that wants to um, kind of create a state of, of dependency on the, on, on the state. Uh, in other words, uh, and, and also that, that during the, as, as the ruins, as the buildings decay, so do the people. So as the buildings decay, so do the people. 
and and um, there had been a documentary film made about the book by a German uh, filmmaker, and it was fascinating. Also, not available anymore. <laughs> and he uh, and basically he interviewed these folks, and and he had interviewed them in specific buildings. I won't go into it now. That were that at one point were grand structures, an opera house, and a and a, and a hotel. And at the time of the documentary, these things were falling down, and there mm. were there were people just kind of squatting there because that's what people do. Nobody owns property, or at least you know uh, now now there's ownership of property at this point but for the better part of the re- of the whole time under the revolution nobody owned anything because it's a communist mm-hmm. state and people just kind of are placed to live in certain in certain buildings and these folks lived in these horrific buildings that nobody should be living in one uh, one man lived in a theater uh, called the Dagong Theater, and another woman was interviewed who lived in a building next to it or across the street from it that was an old hotel that had no walls, just had floor. It was like a building that it was back at its pre-construction state, mm-hmm. you know, except worse because it's in decay. Mm-hmm. So... Debris. just Yeah, just living in, yeah. in debris fields. And um, anyway, I was going to... The idea was we're going to go. I'm going to take Jeff and Dan to, to these places and show it to them, and then we're going to discuss the idea of the art of creating ruins... And instead, we were only there for three days. Uh, we got to go to the Hemingway House, which uh, was way far out, farther than I thought it would be, and consumed a massive amount of time. Um, and Dan then is a huge Hemingway fan, so yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> well, well that, it was actually my. I'm glad you said that because mm-hmm. I, I didn't know if he was enjoying it or not. Yeah, no, he was. And uh, <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, so I, we we did that. We come back. Uh, we walked around this this street that took a long time to walk down. It was the tourist area. And it turns, and I, and then I realized, holy cow! I don't know where these buildings are because I never really plotted where I was gonna. Mm. My idea was, I'm gonna get here, I'm gonna ask somebody, mm. and then the day ran out, and then the next day ran out, and then we were back in Miami, mm. and I was like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> was like, yeah. The time just went by. I see what you're saying. Yeah, so we we uh, we didn't hit any of the things that I wanted to do, among other things, and it was just a very short span of time uh, to do all I. I I had grandiose ideas of a, of what we were going to do during mm. that time. Didn't get to do any of it, but um, so I come back and I tell you over dinner <laughs> yeah. that uh, that I felt like I, was, I spent a year just like brooding, saying well, you over had, that trip. You had looked forward to this trip. Oh for yeah, a long I mean, there's time so much, and there's yeah. so much to be done. I mean, could we mm-hmm. could we uh, go and do a little excursion deep into you know the heart of the islands? Uh, yeah, no, didn't have time for that and all that. But I, no. So how was Castro initially received? Um, well, yeah, that's 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 one of those questions that the, the, the he was received in different ways. One of the, if you talk to my dad, because uh, we're not we're not political folk. Um, we we you know we're we're coming from experience, you know, from my my parents' experience and stuff like that. So this is not ideology or anything like that. My my, if you talk to my dad, he will just tell you that most of the people that he knew, family, um, friends in the neighborhood, when when Castro took over, they were like, it was just another day. Okay. Mm-hmm. There was no celebration. People weren't running out into the streets, going nuts and and saying, "Thank God, but Batista's gone. That he's been overthrown." It was that, a regime was change. So, you're right. It just yeah. It was it was a moment for some people. It was it was scary. Mm-hmm. For others, it was it was just well, like his uncle told him, uh, "Listen, don't worry about it. This happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> it's like, what do you? Why are you surprised? Mm-hmm. This guy will, you know, 
this guy will leave and then someone else will come in. That's just how it is on the island. So, but there was people who, how did they receive him? There were some people who were, the, who were very um, uh, excited about the regime change because they were, these were, most of these were the academics. Uh, most of these were um, the, uh, the uh, artist types, mm-hmm. the, the writers, the journalists. Um, the um, people who had uh, who were who maybe were being uh, hit directly by the corruption because there was a lot of corruption um, financially maybe their pockets were being hit and they mm-hmm. were like this guy's got to go mm-hmm. and because there was there was there was uh, it was creating it creates instability that kind of corruption mm-hmm. you know for a while everything's going well and you're, right. you're like hey, everybody's making money it's okay but then after a while you're like hey this is not we this is not sustainable mm-hmm. so there were people who understood that this was this something had to happen so when castro comes in there this group of people's you know for their own reason their reasons they're they're happy they're they're well, they're ecstatic actually some of them are they're, they're just oh it's a new age for cuba uh from here on out you know, it's going to be peaches and cream. We're going to be awesome. We're going to be great. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's usually what happens when, like, you know, we're here in our country when a president-elect yeah. comes in and the poor voter for him says, you know, to breathe a sigh of relief. Right, oh, right. Some change can now happen. Now something's going to happen. And All those promises. Right. Yeah. And then how did they let him turn it into hell? How did, you know, how did it go downhill? So, so um, he, basically what happened is he came in and he, uh, Batista left, he comes in and he says, look, I'm just here to stabilize the government. I'm not taking over. Mm-hmm. He, he comes in. He says, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to be a leader. I'm going to set myself up as, as, uh, as I believe he set himself up as a prime minister. I don't know if he did that initially. but Now, do you think that was authentic or do you think that he was? Oh, no, no. It was not authentic Yeah, at all. okay. Yeah, no, not, this not, was a, all. not a bit of Castro was. No, he's, he was a very days. shrewd yeah. person mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, egomaniac. Okay. I think what I found interesting was somewhere someone had suggested that what was at, what was in question was whether or not he was going to go communist. In other words, communism was just the vehicle that was going to work for him in his own personal yeah. agenda. Yeah, yeah. And it could have been something else. So in other words, maybe you could have taken him at his word early on when he was getting a lot of popularity with the... Um, with the cultural elites in America, yeah, where they were like, they were, oh, this is great, we love this guy, and he was, he was actually touring the United States, and uh, I think Raúl was kind of mad that so, yeah. Fidel was kind of becoming like a, a Dennis Rodman celebrity in the states. Well, so so you just said use the term cultural elites, which is the word, the term that was escaping me earlier. These are the ones who who were were wanted him to to take power, and and now he knew that. Communism was a big no-no at the time, and he was, and he knew that the, what that meant. There was, you know, he knew what was happening in the United States, uh, you know, with the, the, you know, in Hollywood with the persecution of the, the you know, we had the interviews with the celebrities and the producers and all these folks. And so, are you a communist? You know, mm-hmm. have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? So, it, it, you know, there was uh, th- this was this was something that he knew he had to uh, hold. Close to hold, his heart. Close to his heart, exactly. So he, and also he, w- I don't think he really was a communist. I think mm. he read Marx. I think he read, obviously he also read Hitler and he also read, <laughs> he also admired Mussolini. He, he wanted power. He wanted, he was, he was, he was very shrewd and he was thinking, how can I, um, how, how, what do I need to do 
to hold on to this and what can I do with this? Mm-hmm. I th- also think that, uh, you know, like anybody, he got into power and he saw, he got all this, uh, these accolades from people all over the world and said, hey, this is actually pretty interesting. I, I, I can do something with mm-hmm. this, you know? That's a powerful drug, too. Yeah, it's and if you, and it could be any, I mean, we, we see this with, in what we're looking at with this podcast on, on the religious side of things. It's almost immaterial whether or not this pastor decided to be a televangelist stealing money from old ladies or not. Mm-hmm. But there is that seemingly perhaps narcissistic personality yeah. that once they've got a taste of that level, of, as, you're, as you're saying, accolades mm-hmm. or just power. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were, the, intel- there, there were the, the cultural elites, there were the people that in an intellectual level at an ideological level, we're really excited that this, this is going to be this experiment that's happening. Right, right. Basically, a football's throw from, from Florida mm-hmm. at a time when to be a communist is also bringing with it kind of the rebellion, right? Like, you know, uh, I was saying, if you're, a, if you're the daughter of a conservative Christian pastor, you should come home with a collar and say you became an Episcopal <laughs> priest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's how you rebel for that yeah. particular father. And so... If, if, if the big daddy that's kind of hassling the Western Hemisphere in your mind is the United States, if the Yankees are going to be really mad at that, that's, a, mm-hmm. you know, that's like a missionary kid wants right. to get mad at that and listens to uh, you know, Marilyn Manson or something. That's, right. that's about as bad as you can go. But then there are other people who really believe in Marilyn Manson figuratively. They believe in the movement. Right. But everything that they want right, is sometimes tied up in the writings of Marx, for instance provide extensive cultural enrichment for the average person. Put museums everywhere. Have yes. musical presentations. Mm-hmm. Can we talk? I can take it out if you want. Mm-mm. Can we talk about our wonderful visit to a museum and a public concert? One of the most interesting things about the experience. We're walking down a street close to where your, your parents lived. Yeah. And we saw a sign that said, Piano concert. Oh, yeah. I forgot about At 3 about that. p.m. That's right. So we went to this place to see the piano concert. Now, do you remember what was inside? Could you describe the inside? Nothing. <laughs> it was completely empty. It was, uh, so this is what was interesting. It's a museum. So this is in my father's town. Shout out to my mom and dad's town, Santiago de Las Vegas, Cuba, in Havana. It's a suburb of Havana. It's an old colonial town. Actually, was a, a tobacco, uh, the, a tobacco farm. So that, that's, what made, that's what made money there. And um, so... This is an old colonial town that's also falling apart, fallen into ruin. Um, and they had this, this building that I, every time I go, I walk into because it's interesting. It's open, and it's a, it's a, you can tell it was once a, a stately home. Mm-hmm. It's got the beautiful tile floor, the Cuban tile, and the, and the ornate columns and everything. But they always, and at different times, they've had different pieces of furniture in there, old furnish, furnishings, maybe some old pictures. And every time I go, I ask, well, "What is this?" Because I, because I, I, I'm, because every time I go, it changes. No. So it's uh, there's always other stuff or no stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you say, "Well, this is the museum for our town, the historical museum." 
oh, cool. <laughs> so, but like I said, oh, next, uh, you know, the next year I'm like, oh, I got to go back to the museum, see, you know, check it out again. Right. I get there, there's nothing in it. It's an empty room, and there's well, somebody sitting at a desk. This like is this. Western propaganda, Marcos. What there was in the room <laughs> were a couple upside-down display cases. Right, right. That's <laughs> right. That's true. Arguably antique. <laughs> yeah. Empty. But it's interesting that this Circa was... Circa 1972. That it, yeah, that yeah. it disappears. And, and in the backyard... things come, yeah. And in yeah. the backyard was the head of a statue of some Spanish landowner. I have that picture. I have a picture of that head. Oh, and, and then, and then it, uh, if the room is empty, uh-huh. and the room can be completely bare. Take out your phone, try to take a picture, just of nothing, and they, uh, hey, and you he, can't take pictures in here. Of, I'm, what am I, <laughs> what? what's yeah. the mystery? But that's, that's Cuba. Wait, mm-hmm. that's not just Cuba. That was one of the scariest moments. Now, there's this lady in a uniform, and she has determined that her duty today is to make sure she's got her passport numbers, and we're starting to blast out of town. Now, I knew... Yeah, she wanted to write I down... I could right, run faster than right. this lady. Yeah. You don't want her collecting that, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there was a, a baby grand piano, right, in the there room? Was a, uh, there, was a, there was a grand piano in the room. Yeah. But it was 340. Mm, maybe I'm... That's Western propaganda. Maybe it was 330, but there was no people. So when there was this no concert people. supposed to start? It was supposed to start in this museum. Uh-huh. The muse- it was not what I expected. So you yeah. didn't have... Your trip wasn't what you expected. <laughs> this this uh, performance was, was great, not... But this performance was not what I expected. Or the museum. Or the museum. The museum was not... The venue was not what I expected. Was the guy playing? Nobody played, but at about 3.40, a dude and his daughter rolled up, did a little duet. I think three people might have come. Now, I first of all, I'd like to we say... We were the three people. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe somebody's aunt showed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But partly, I, I, I don't know, I was speculating that... If you you know if, if you're looking at a map, you could show the outside world. You could yeah. say, "Hey, look, we've got the highest per capita medical professionals. Mm-hmm. They're all making thirty bucks a month, but we got the highest per capita medical professionals. Yep. And look how many per capita museums we have." Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who's telling on them? Who's telling on them? <laughs> I don't think now, that's like a major point. But so now you mentioned I that. I guess we are now. <laughs> A guy and his daughter show up. Yeah, but what, they played. What kind of music was it? Uplifting. Classical. Was it classical? It was, music. It was okay. great. Yeah, it was great. That's so there Cuba. was a little. Was there a little moment then? No, everybody I saw. I think everybody was a like a professional musician in Cuba. Cuba, Cuba does. Cuba does have an incredible uh, class cla- uh, musical training uh, program. I don't know where they how they do it, but it's it's it really is impressive. I mean, we, we were at church uh, on that Sunday, early, early that morning, and, you know, we're being told, okay, that guy is, is uh, plays with such and such artist, saxophone, and, you know, you're like, oh, I've, I've actually seen this, you know, on, I've seen these, this on, on the internet, this musician. Uh, the, that, that lady's a classically trained violinist. Wow. That one's a classically trained pianist. That's a classically trained, classically trained, classi- all of them classically trained. Well, and it's amazing, too, how much good music does come from those that are oppressed. I think that sometimes is their only escape. Yeah, and that's true also. That was yeah. true at church, man. I don't know if they were Presbyterians or Methodists, but man, when that guitar was going or they were hitting the congas. I mean, that's, the, I mean, that's, that's a moment of fun. just sheer joy yeah. that you can yeah. have you yeah. know and the, the real question that we have for the purposes of our show is how is it that you can convince a whole nation small nation to go along with something that increasingly is demonstrating that it's not really providing what it promised there was a um, there was a a, a, a Cuban r- uh, writer he was a film critic actually 
His name was Gu- uh, Guillermo Cabrera Infante, uh, and he was uh, he he was one of those who supported the Castro regime. Uh, it, just a case in point, there was there were many like him. He was one of the cultural elites. He traveled with Castro throughout Cuba uh, after 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 he took over. He um, he went on tele on Cuban television and was part of a forum called the the Round Table. And he would, um, and and they would discuss the arts, and they would discuss what's going to happen to the arts, what's going to happen to this, what's going to happen to whatever, uh, social changes that were coming, and they would discuss it publicly on on Cuban television, and so this guy was on, well, he was with the in crowd, right? He was he was he was close to Castro, so uh, then uh, Castro decides, I got to control this, because. Hmm. Things were happening, and he said he he was he knew he he knew that he had to tighten the reins even more and more and more the the uh, and just kind of like a like an Iron Maiden you know just like squeezing mm. squeezing squeezing. So he um <coughs> so what he d- what he does is he comes down on the arts, and he starts uh, s- uh, censoring artists. And one of the people he censored was G- uh, Guillermo's brother, uh, who had made a short film. That was actually a cool film where he just shot no 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 uh, narrative no story he just shot Havana at night uh, different scenes and he went to different places and he thought what 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 happened with the film was uh, he he was sh- because he was showing Havana at night he's showing what he's showing the the nightlife mm-hmm. people walking the streets smoking cigarettes people um, standing outside a cafe drinking rum. People at the at a, at a local uh, at, at at a local bar, La Bolita de Medio, dancing drunk, mm. you know, and it's and he's and doing it what artists do. Yeah, mm. this is Allen Ginsberg mm-hmm. uh, Howell. It's like this is this is the scene. Beautiful, like film noir type stuff, yeah. you know, bl- black and white. It was. Yeah. I, I've seen footage of it. I have it's, not it seen amazing. it, but I do know it's famous. But there's one, uh, so you can find it on YouTube. Um, but there's there's a section that's been lost because it was destroyed by the Cuban government. They didn't want that they didn't show. Want, they didn't want. Well, they they wanted to destroy the whole thing. This they were able to. Somebody was able to take out this, f- what was left of it, and preserve it. But the other part was was lost. They weren't able to because it was on different reels. Mm-hmm. That reel was lost. Mm-hmm. Um, he censored it because that was immoral. Mm. Castro, see, Castro was trying to create in what he believed in his mind was a moral culture um that he could control that's something that people miss he was he was very much like like uh uh he was almost like, like the christian version of a fundamentalist mm-hmm. okay and i'm not i'm not exaggerating when i say that um lifestyle uh, wise no no him no not his not lifestyle him. okay yeah he was but for other people yeah for other people for the for the for the good of the of the nation of society we had to form a moral uh state without the church that okay. people can be good on their own so it, it, he what he did was he 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 basically uh he took out the church he took out capitalism he took out but then also he 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 persecuted homo, uh, homosexuals and people don't don't realize this that this is also lost in history he actually had concentration camps, literal, Ooh, wow. real concentration camps <coughs> um, that were th- where he would where. And I've, I've heard testimonials, video testimonials of, of people who were picked up walking down the street because they walked funny. Mm. Mm. And a police would stop him and say, come here. Let me see your ID. 
and and they would put them on a bus, no, no with what they had on, and taken out for for hours and hours across the island to to the eastern province of the island, and there they had built concentration camps, and at that concentration camps, at that concentration camp were Jehovah's Witnesses. For some reason, Jehovah's Witnesses. They I always, they always, <laughs> yeah, you know, stop knocking yeah. on the door and maybe uh, tyrants will leave you yeah. alone. So, so wait, do, now, do people, I mean, obviously you're going to know when you're missing a family member, but do people, they, they know this is going on, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, they know this is going on, but they can't do anything about right? it because it's a police state. And this goes back to where you, were, where you were asked the question. The way you, you control, what, you, what he had to do was control my, uh, um, in a, in a, in little microcosm ways, mm-hmm. or like by neighborhood, I, I explained to you when we got there. I showed you how in the uh, uh, every block, every square block had a committee for the defense of the revolution house. It was almost like a, like a like a homeowners association. Mm. You had your watchdog on the corner, and these people were aware of everything that was going on within eyesight and whatever was out of eyesight of their out of their purview somebody else had that other angle so it's all and someone over here neighborhood watch angle. network yeah neighborhood watch network yeah. and they were listening to everything that was said they were smelling what you were cooking mm. Mm. literally i'm not saying using it as a metaphor like you're mm. cooking cow you're cooking i smell steak you, you, uh, co- eating mm. steak is illegal because beef is illegal in cuba or at least was for many years um, I smell seafood. What are you cooking over there? And someone would knock on your door. Hmm. So I mean, and and, and what? Why? And what? And what so what are you people talking about? Didn't you have you had a relative that uh, that had been shut down for allegedly selling lobster? Isn't this mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. He was shut. He had a little uh, restaurant, and um, and it was shut down for I think a year and a half or two years. I, I got there the first time when. When he the, right before they closed him down, and when I went back in 2011, he was like, "Oh, this is the first day we open up." <laughs> mm-hmm. And and he said, and he told me, he goes, "Look, if I if I had lobster, I, I'd I'd tell you. I, we didn't have anything. Somebody just wanted to rat us out because mm. they were mad. They they wanted to, they had a vendetta and they that's shut the him down. Way to do it, yeah. So that's that. When, when you when uh, I, I'm, gosh, I think I think I forgot the question already, but to, it's it's basically. Um, so he, they were they were concentrating control, and, yeah. um, so that you can um, uh, properly uh, get eyes and ears. Scare everywhere. the people. You're scaring yeah. the people. You're frightening them. You're t- you're 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 instilling fear. Mm-hmm. So the fear based. Thing, yeah, yeah. Is that effective at least in the short term, or to what extent was it effective for actually changing people's minds? Because we saw we saw. A lot of Fidel tattoos. Yeah. I saw dudes with Che on one arm and Fidel on the other. I mm-hmm. saw, you know, what's that about? Is that just like national pride, cultural pride, or? Well, you're looking at. Um, it's a generation two generations, remove. Yeah. Multiple generations later when you're there and you're, and, and um, I don't remember specific, well, maybe I just wasn't paying attention. I watch people's tattoos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, is that also, I mean, is that also possibly a defense so that you wouldn't get... It could be, but I think at this gener- with this generation, you're so far removed from the original mm. uh, sense of, of foreboding, you're, you're born in it. And mm. also things, had, 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 things eventually start to come undone. You know, all that control, you can't keep that kind of control mm-hmm. going forever. You know, it's, you're going you're gonna to lose... You're going to lose some traction on that. So I think a lot of these people are from a younger generation, 
and it's their country. They're they're proud of where they live. They and a lot of them don't know anything else. Mm. So they're not they're not look they're not they're like my my parents' generation was where they they had they knew what they had before, mm. and now and it w- and I'm not talking about wealth that they had yeah. before. I'm talking about freedom, peace, family, mm-hmm. um, less paranoia, walking around without looking over your shoulder, um, enjoying your Cubanness. Now Cubanness became communism became a, 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 a an idea as opposed to just a culture because mm-hmm. culture was systematically ripped apart and and what you were left with was in essence law mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what you're i mean and yeah. i'm not i'm not trying to bring it back to biblical no, it, it, <laughs> no but in me, essence that's please what it do is. because yeah. what we're trying to do yeah. is say that in many ways political ideologies Secular political ideologies, and in this case, atheistic political ideologies, act like religions. You yeah. can't really get around it. People need a religious se- sense of meaning. Yeah. And, and if you look at the moralism part of it, I mean, it's it, it, when I realized that uh, later on, because we don't talk, we don't, you know, in, in our, here in Miami, people talk about comunista, comunista, communism, communism, communism. But, but really, he wasn't a communist. He was an opportunist. He was mm. he was he was a narcissist. He was uh, a dictator. A dictator. Yeah. And he was he, he was uh, you know. So in Cuba, you didn't have. Uh, we my dad would say it wasn't uh, comunismo, communism. It was fidelismo, mm. you know, f- f- fide- fidel- fidelism or whatever. Yeah. And because um, fideism is something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's thing. actually that's actually a really good insight because so far on our journey, Stacy and I have seen that from place to place, from commune to Hindu monastery uh, to to a, a Zen uh, a Zen master who's otherwise somebody who had been reputable. There is a magic to what they're selling. Yeah. Even if it's misguided. So it could be an intense Pentecostal spiritual experience. It could be a promise of healing from a pastor right. with the anointing. It could be somebody who, who says, hey, we're going we're gonna to change things and we're all going to live as one and we're going to share and share alike. So that, or it could be the Bikram Yoga guy, or the or Osho, the guy who does the uh, Rajneeshis. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they find these things that that kind of work, right? So if you get a if you get a lost seventeen year old kid, and you teach him how to do some hyperventilating, <laughs> and you chant Om afterwards, then they're kind of primed. They're oh, and they're doing it together, high, yeah. and they're doing it with a bunch of other young people. Mm-hmm. They had no family. They felt abandoned or neglected, and now they've got meaning, and their family is thousands strong. Yeah, and they're yeah. changing mm-hmm. the world. And then somebody says, "I'm the one who dispenses this. Mm-hmm. I'm the one." Now the the revolution, and he started out. If I'm not getting my history right, uh, wrong, Fidel started out not wanting to have his image around. Yeah. But eventually it's everywhere. We see it right. everywhere we go right. as we're traveling right. around. And that was interesting. That was a, that, I mean, that just shows you his, his genius. Because at the end of the day, the guy was brilliant. I mean, he, that he, is the he, bummer about a lot he of was a, he, was a, he was a tyrant, <laughs> but he was brilliant. And, and, and even that, you've got to look at that and say, and, and, and think about the foresight you know, that, mm-hmm. that he had mm-hmm. to think, I don't, I'm not going to put any images because I'm not going to make this about, I'm going to play the humble card. You don't want to make it look mm-hmm. like that, at least. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play the mm-hmm. humble card. And the guy was was um, I mean yeah I could go on but I'll I'll stay I'll stick with the topic 
because we Cubans well, this, can ramble on. I don't know, man. This, <laughs> no, yeah, I want you to keep going because this, is, in this, in the sense, that is the topic, right? right. You, yeah. The the one of the things we said on our previous show was that one of the you know the way that you can kind of spot somebody's core wickedness sometimes a leader's core wickedness is what they're condemning. Yeah. You know, and you see whether you know it's very hard to get this idea that you should be filthy rich when you have a congregation of poor people yeah. in Jesus. It's it's pretty pretty obvious that in almost all of these Marxist regimes, somewhere along the line people got the idea that they were just gonna take the same kind of status that the that the capitalists and the old wealth had. Yeah. And they're just gonna take it for themselves and their friends. Sure, and that's what this that's what it turned into. Right. Exactly. Right. The 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 point one percent of Cuba. Yeah. That's just wealthy. Shifted hands. And um, they they never lacked anything. They you know, for generations. All, for all those generations that there were people that were that were just barely getting by um, and and spending their entire day uh, looking for food because that's what happens. That's another thing that you do uh, that he did. The way he controlled it and the way he could keep it um, keep everybody in line is you you keep them you keep them wanting mm-hmm. and for for basic needs and like you said, depending on them, I'm going to give this to you. Mm-hmm. So if you if you're if uh, a, a typical cuban depending on the generation would wake would wake up in the uh, in the morning and say okay today i'm not i don't have to work cuz you don't work okay i mean you can work but why cuz you're going to make the same amount of money you might make a few a few you know a little bit of change but that's it um unless you're in tourism and again tourism didn't really come Exist. into being again until the until the early 90s um I'm going to go back to something there, but I don't want to lose my train of thought. So uh, a typical person gets up in the morning and they spend their entire day trying to figure out how they're going to bring in enough food to feed the family for that day. And the next day they get up and do the same thing. Right. And they're, okay, we're, I, we're hot. now today I got to spend my day trying to find toilet paper. Right. Today I got to spend the day mm-hmm. trying to find, you know. They can't th- cause other trouble yeah. when that's what they have to just sustain themselves. Right. Each so, day. so then, you know, and, and what I was going to say is I, just yesterday I was talking to my dad's cousin who's uh, 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 roughly his age. And she was, a, she was a professor in the University of Havana. I know this from past conversations with her. I hadn't seen her in a few years, but I just saw her last night, yesterday. And she was telling me. Uh, we're talking about the chicken Gordon Blue, which we, we may or may not get into. <laughs> oh, we oh, yeah. now we better. <laughs> but, <laughs> Definitely. But uh, she she basically said that that she remembers in the early '90s going to get uh, training to be a food server because that was going to be the new industry of Cuba was tourism, mm-hmm. and how she went into this old stately hotel, which at one time was one of the beautiful hotels in Cuba. That's still around, and uh, going to the top floor, of which was the restaurant level, and and they they taught them how to walk, how to serve plates, how to how to how to hold their the the linen napkins, how to uh, you know, and 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 I'm sitting there and saying, you were a professor in a university, and you were going to become a food server. I'm just get, and kind yeah. of lucky mm-hmm. to be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because mm-hmm. tur- thank God for tourism, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And and uh, th- and thankfully, a lot of folks there have been able to to benefit from it and and actually in- improve their their quality of life because of it. Uh, and and you know, it's they become not the elite, but they become oh, that's the uh, the, the middle class, you know. But see, this is something that's important to all authoritarian systems. Sometimes it's what makes me nervous about myself. The philosopher 
uh, Slavoj Žižek says that authoritarian systems sometimes employ guys like Malinson that appear to be um, on the edge or pushing the limit or disrespectful or a little bit to try rebellious. To bring them back in. Not to bring them back in, but to give them the illusion that there's freedom. Mm. So they so so Zizek says in in Full Metal Jacket, for instance, in the movie Full Metal Jacket, they show that guys getting told how to be dutiful soldiers and not ask questions get to tell real raunchy jokes or yeah. do kind of sexually perverse hazing rituals gotcha. in in boot camp to make them feel like oh we're free we're like we're like a bunch of pirates right. we're like the Peter yeah. Pan kid yeah. mm-hmm. and um, and uh, and yet that boot camp thing is kind of what I do at, let's say at college or as a youth leader in the old days or whatever but ultimately we need you to kind of get in line mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so that, you know there's, there's part of that you see where I'm right going I, I, I yeah, absolutely yeah. do yeah I, I mean I'm as things are going downhill um, for those I mean how did people know to escape or how did people yeah, let's, make yeah going an back escape? to a little yeah, bit like, earlier on when yeah, I mean, when it started to become clear yeah when you know is it is it they kind of see what his up, real agenda might be or did they not, not, well, the not reason, really ever do yeah, that? Yeah, like the reason I mentioned Guillermo Cabrera Infante, the, the film critic who was a film critic for a magazine in Cuba at the time and when, he, when his brother's film was censored, he protested. Mm-hmm. He said, look, you can't do this. And Fidel said, watch me. <laughs> it's yeah. happening. It's mm-hmm. over. That's done. This is how it's going to be. And I, I, what, what they, there's, a, there's a saying in Cuba... Um, uh, in Spanish, it's le pisaron el callo, and in English, the translation is they they stepped on his uh, uh, bunion. <laughs> For I don't know what is it, you know, the, the, something on your foot. Okay, I don't know yeah, how to yeah, translate yeah. it to English. Um, uh, and uh, and in other words, they they step on you, you f- you feel pain, and uh, and now you're like, oh, this this is horrible. The system is is a failure. Mm-hmm. So they that's what happened to him. They hit him where it hurts. Right, mm-hmm. right. And I think what happens is that everybody is fine until until you you hit a wall. What and you're you like, care about, yeah, is w- going to disappear. Exactly. So uh, and 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 for my dad, uh, and I, I mentioned this on on the other podcast. For my dad, uh, his cousin came to him and said because my dad declared to his his side of the family that he wanted to leave the island, and he was. Gosh, I think he was twenty, twenty-one years old, hmm. right around there. And and he uh, and they sa- and his cousin came up to him and said and said, "Why do you want to leave?" Uh, and he said and he and he asked and he told his his my dad told his cousin. He said, "Look, can I raise my can I if if I stay here, will I be able to go to work and earn a living?" Hmm. And and he said and he was told no. So then and he yeah. said, um, "Can I can I own can I own a house?" And he goes, no, can I raise my, can I put my daughter in a private school? Because he had gone to, uh, my grandparents, uh, with the little they had, they were able to put him in a, pri- in a Methodist uh, private school. And, and he wanted to do the same thing. And his cousin told him, no, you won't be able to. He goes, then I don't want to stay. Because right. those are the things that are important to me. He cared about, me. yeah. Um, and, and I don't, and, oh, and he also asked him, can I practice my faith Freely, <laughs> and he said, <laughs> no. and he said no, because that church eventually they, they shut it down. Mm. The church my dad used to go to, and they, these are they, all these things that are important yeah. in his life. Yeah, I want to pause here because that's actually I, I know some of that part of the story, but 
for the purposes of our overarching question sometimes is when should you get out of a bad system? Right. Whether it's religious, a marriage. And when you realize whatever brings you life is going to... Yeah, they're taking those things. Away, you can give me all away. the rhetoric in the world that's saying that we've got this, this wonderful new system. Yeah. But if all your values are being taken away, and I think the application would be, if you're asking these questions, say, what, dear listener, are those things that are deeply valuable to you? Mm-hmm. Is whatever you're tangled up in supporting that thing or those things, or is it taking it away? At least that helped your dad. Yeah. But now he eventually is able to get out how? Well, so my my uncle was um, was part of the the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, and he was taken prisoner along with his uh, his brothers in arms, and they were taken for, they were imprisoned for, uh, if I'm not mistaken, for about a year. Um, my my uncle was able to serve as as a, kind of a an emissary for his his brothers in, in prison and come to and, and actually uh, uh, come to Washington to petition the United States government to uh, allow um, to to ha- find a way to get them out of prison because because the uh, the United States government had sent them in there had helped send them in there. And now they were they were they were ca- they were prisoners of war, and what could we do to get out? So basically, the U- the the United States government struck a deal with Castro, um, and, and uh, I don't remember the monetary amount, but it was it was it was millions mm. of of dollars worth of, of of material goods and and cash in exchange for the release of the prisoners of war with their families. So my family. My my dad and my mom were put on the list with my sister, my oldest sister, and uh, who was an infant back then, mm. and they were able to to get out, and that's how they they found their way out. And it was one mm. day to the next. Mm. Uh, my my dad was a photographer, and uh, he was taking he took a beautiful picture at night of um, a street in his town, and it's actually like uh, we it's circulating on the internet with people who know the town and they love it because it's 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 such a beautiful photo mm-hmm. and he told me re- you know in the last couple of years i'd always seen the picture loved it but he just told he goes you know that was the night before we left mm. Mm. he goes i got home that night and they said then so, uh, so some family members came over knocked on the door and said we have to leave to this other town tonight because in the morning we're boarding a ship to to the united states mm. So they picked up what they what they could well, they carry can, yeah. and uh, and left. Wow. Yep. One of the things that's really hard for people to leave bad situations is also the family tying you down. So that, and I did a chapter in a book about Scientology, and so this idea that you would have this uh, the practice of disconnection. Yeah. You're forcing the the person to make a decision. Their decision is between their own personal freedom or the freedom of themselves and maybe a couple close family members, but also separating from children and brothers and sisters and extended family. That's an important part of human life. And so you've got folks that are, that are having to be kind of pulled away from that. What, what were some of the dynamics then between folks like your dad and mom, people who left, the exiles in Florida, and then the folks back, back home? There was separation because, uh, well, my mom's side of the family uh, is the side of the family uh, with this uncle who was able to get us out. Mm-hmm. But my dad's side 
were f- most of them were were actually they they drank the Kool Aid. They were they were part of the of of the revolution. Mm-hmm. They considered themselves they they thought it was good. They thought it was it was moral, mm-hmm. and um, they 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 said this is they were they were they I mean to the point where my dad one time had been uh, passive aggressively mostly aggressively threatened uh, that by a, a cousin of his who pulled out a gun and a revolver and put it on the table whoever's against the revolution I'll shoot him and I'll shoot him right now knowing mm. that my dad was not mm. for it right and my dad by the way was not like uh, was not vocal about it he wasn't he wasn't an anti-Castro nobody was really and I mean there were, sure there were some but he was he was more just I think ma- the majority of the people were just like this is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> right, this is, this right, is a little claustrophobic right. for my flow. Right. Yeah, this is not what what this is mm. not the way things were. We, this is, we don't like this. So mm-hmm. that's that's just how we felt. Um, so when he left, um, because also because communication is not what it is now, um, he lost complete contact with the family over there. Hmm. Um, the only one who would write letters was my grandmother, his mom. Uh, who would write letters uh, pretty regularly when she came to the United States, and she she always sent pictures and stuff like that until she couldn't anymore. But for the most part, it became it, it just created a rift. Mm. the The interesting thing, though, is that on the island as well, the government made a rift the, even with the families that stayed right there. Fidel had a had a saying that he shared in one of his speeches which was within the revolution, everything, outside the revolution, nothing. Mm. And family was not part of the equation of the This happens with cults all the time. The new family is the movement. That's right. The only thing that mattered was uh, the system and and holding it up. So there was, um, that's that's something that, yeah, you see it mirrored in in cult movements and in and in churches that are as well sometimes (laughs) right well and when yeah Yeah. so when you care more about either the organization you know institution or the the ideology or whatever than the people yeah then it's always a dangerous and here you are right like in the whole the whole thing it ideologically is in 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 many ways it's a parody of christianity it's a godless christianity marxism is and therefore, what's so difficult is it's hard to argue against the analysis of things, the way that money has become an idol. It is an idol. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Marxism is, is right to criticize it. Mm-hmm. The idea that we should look out for the least, the last and the lost, the people who are, who are getting crushed in the situation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. This is great. And what do you get? Just like what we were talking about on our show about Molech, where you, you go in for one thing and you get the exact opposite. You mm-hmm. go in for... Yeah. The enrichment of people, and they've got a museum in shambles. Yeah. You go in to feed people, and people in the 90s are eating you know, the leather off their shoes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Which, yeah. What was your sense? Because you've, you've been back a few times, but your, your sense of the spirit, your take, the spirit of the, the folks that stayed behind, especially people that maybe were extended family, and how they received you. So what did what was your sense of how they had fared emotionally, spiritually, mentally? I think um, one of the things about that I learned in in the several trips going back is that that life goes on. You you can live in a system like that, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, you you survive. Hmm. Uh, whether you're surviving and with moments of of respite, 
or whether you're just constantly in survival mode and miserable, you're surviving mm-hmm. and you're living, mm-hmm. you know. So I remember one day I, I went out for a walk. Or I, went, I, I woke up before the sun rose and we were staying in, 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 in old Havana and I was, I was within walking distance of the Malecon, which is the, that's the, the that seawall that everybody sees in all the pictures of Cuba and everything. Mm-hmm. There was a Fast and the Furious that took place. Mm-hmm. Had and you there was, this? And yes, and it was also a really good long walk that you and I and, and the oh, other that people... Was, I think our walk was better than the, than the movie. <laughs> we, we walked almost the entire Malecon to get yeah. back to the hotel. It was wonderful. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful I, place. I'm glad you remember that as wonderful. It was fantastic. It was amazing. When you get to yeah. do that. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I walked out this morning and I watched the sunrise on the Malecon and as I went out, oh, there was, that's where all the the old the presidential palaces and the uh, and the capital and all these amazing monuments and i saw people um i saw i saw a, a folks uh doing a, a early morning uh workout routine at, at, under at the foot of one of the monuments i saw an old couple married couple walking going for a morning walk because mm. that's what they do every morning mm-hmm. and I saw some guys come and they, they said good morning and they set up their fishing rods and they were fishing because that's what they do every right. morning I saw a guy on a on a pretty nice uh, bike bicycle come you know with you know just you know ride down the the, the street there by the Malecon and uh, and his biker shorts and his and you know he had the whole get up and these are Cubans mm-hmm. and, I'm, and, I'm, and I just remember looking at that and saying wow Life, life. You find a way. Mm-hmm. You find a way to to live. You find a way to to enjoy in whatever way you can. Right, in your moments. And but the thing is, it it doesn't it doesn't make it um, right. It doesn't. I mean, you just you just you you do what you, the spirit of the of of the people there is one of 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 survival mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and making and not just survival, but making the most of things. Cause you know, it's the Caribbean. Come on, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's and that's such a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And and um, there's there's a sense that that uh, that is appreciated on the other. What they have, they're not living, they're they're not living in a in in an, in an entire hell. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. Right. It's there. There's hellish parts to it. I think when we're thinking of hell, <laughs> we're also thinking about the way in which it would seem it would seem like hell to somebody who for instance, was an artist and all of a sudden isn't able to right, do their art. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, somebody oh, yeah, who's, yeah, who's thinking, exactly. hey, wait a minute, this is, this is going to be like the, the Beatles. One, right. And like, wait a minute, this isn't like the Beatles at all. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, and the same thing like yeah. your dad, all the things that you might love right. being taken mm-hmm. away from yeah. you, you know. How were you received? Because you, you met some folks. I mean, people yeah. are going to be generous and kind and so forth, but. Well, I was, I was received well for the most part. Uh, I, I met the first trip, I, I went to visit family that I didn't even know existed. Mm. Um, uh, there were folks that, that that somehow knew. Man, Cubans are great at gossip. <laughs> and somehow, my, people well, in Miami communicated that I was going to people who I didn't even know existed. Okay. Wow. So when I showed up, like one cousin that I met, she she said she you know I just came upon her and I said yeah I'm, uh, I'm here to see this other person and she goes. And she goes, are you Marcos? <laughs> oh, yeah, she goes, I'm your cousin. I'm like, I don't even know who you are. I was like, and we both started crying. Because wow. I was like, because yeah. it was a weird, it's like, mm-hmm. how do we not know each other? Right. Um, it's part of your blood. Feeling, yeah. 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 And then, and then uh, there was, uh, there w- the j- <laughs> it's, it's funny, the, the guy I mentioned earlier who, who put the revolver down on the table, slammed it down and said, whoever's against the revolution, I'll blow his head off. 
they took me to his house. He's an mm. old man now. And <laughs> it was funny because I get to his house. He's wearing a hard hat huh. in his house. And I never understood that to this day. But they took me to this house, <laughs> and it was a committee for the defense of the revolution house. It was one of the wa- he's mm-hmm. one, one of the, the watchdogs. Wow. And I'm like, and this is my first time there in Cuba, and I'm, and I'm nervous, you know, because we've heard all these horror stories it, it, that mostly were created here in Miami about what That's happened. That's an interesting meeting. But, mm-hmm. but, we, mm-hmm. but I meet him, and he's, uh, and, and my aunt, who I also didn't know existed, says, this is Marcos. And he looks at me, and he goes, Marcos? Because it's my dad's name. And he, and he just turned red and started bawling, took his hard hat off. Wow. Oh, and, wow. He bu- and he walked away, and he just sat down, and he, he kind of collapsed in his chair. I had another uncle who was my dad's, like a brother to my father, who I had heard of. He's the only one that my dad ever talked about. Mm-hmm. I met him, and he fell apart when he met me. Mm-hmm. And, wow. he, and he said, why? Tell your dad. This is like, this is ages later mm-hmm. 50, 50 years later he's like tell your dad to forget all the politics I, you know tell him to, to let it go and I miss him and tell wow. him to call me you know, and, it was, and later on unfortunately he passed before I could see him again yeah. but um, that's heavy yeah uh, so that's the spirit that they welcomed me was was very warm mm. for the most part yeah um, I had yeah. some that one aunt asked me some questions but she was a little bitter you know she was a little she that's just how she is mm-hmm. but but everybody else welcomed me they 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 I think at the end of the day they they were just happy to to meet someone from the outside that mm-hmm. was related to them now know. from your experiences do you think that there are any true believers of the revolution anymore or do you think no yeah no not even not even no at the at the house that's watching everybody. Well, uh, yeah, maybe because, I mean, you know, if they're if you're getting you're paid, for, if yeah. you're if you're if the system's working for you, mm-hmm. sure, you know, if it's and if you have no, you you can turn a blind well, eye to to all. We, we see that in a lot of systems, we, and so, you're you know. getting by, but you're, yeah. you're saying that the actual ideal of it is not there. Day to day, yeah, yeah, because the ideal uh, the ideal itself, which is very um, altruistic, mm-hmm. very. Uh, sounds very nice, very poetic. That that ideal, nobody really nobody saw it. Nobody cares about anymore because that was at that was at the beginning of the revolution. Yeah. And then they saw quickly how it degraded, and then it was just like, oh, okay, so I guess this is just how it is. I guess we'll just keep on living and mm-hmm. see see where this takes us. Right. Uh, I think the ide- I think the people who believe in that uh, who 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 believed in it again at the beginning were the cultural elites the the people who were um these are these are the uh <laughs> the people who love Frida Kahlo the people sorry Frida uh, <laughs> the people who celebrate just because oh what a what a su- such a brave woman such a you know such so outspoken and you know they saw the movie or whatever and then um and then you know just the the idealists are the ones who 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 glom onto it and and love it and and usually those those guys if they're well, if they're if they're connected enough, they can also eat pretty good. Yeah, they can also have a little bit of a nicer house, mm-hmm. be more involved in community activities right. for a reason because maybe they're part of the 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 uh, the academia or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after a while, it just kind of wears off. Because day to day, I would say my assessment. I, I agree with you. I think people seemed very genuinely happy to see you if if they had known your family. The the one thing though is I've been to places with some pretty extreme poverty, 
I've seen indigenous people in Guatemala making who knows what, picking coffee beans with their children on their backs. Yep. But there was a gleam in a lot of these eyes. And I mean, and I'm not trying to just be some dude traveling around and pretending like I'm going to downplay the stress of whatever eking out a, a living there in Guatemala is. Guatemala's not doing fantastic. But my point is, is that at that extreme, from some of the folks that I saw, there were smiles and there was a, there was a dance in their, you know, in their oh, yeah. step yeah. that I did not see in Cuba except for those moments, like at church or when people are performing music, sure. where that kind of bubbled out. But I, I saw a demoralized people that I did not see even in, in certain parts of China that had been very heavily wow. communist, mm-hmm. um, like in Foshan mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. I just yeah. don't think I've seen a place that made me as sad. In, in as much as I really loved it, there was a vibrance and there was also this um, kind of a shrugged shoulder experience. Being of down. This, and there was one, so maybe that's not everybody, but there was one woman, she was in line with us to get cash. Mm-hmm. And she was Cuban. And we were in a line as tourists to get cash that was a different currency. Yeah. So could you explain for the dear listener who hasn't, yeah, knowledge of the monetary system in Cuba for tourists. So, so the so basically, there's in Cuba there's two currencies. There's the the, the peso, which is the the national currency, and then there's the CUC, the kook, as they call it, <laughs> as uh, the gringos call it. Uh, they they call it the, in Cuba they call it the CUC, and the CUCs are the uh, is basically the the uh, it's 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 ca- it's cash that's valued. Above the dollar, which is hilarious, <laughs> and and basically it's it's how it's the money that the tourists used to to buy stuff to to if they're gonna buy buy souvenirs, it's like or Disney buy dollars, a, a Roman <laughs> Col- a Roman Coke, uh, whatever. That's it's like Disney dollars exactly. So she went to ex- yeah, she went to this um, this uh, little uh, 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 booth in a hot- in an old hotel. Uh, that we actually talk about in one of our pod- in one of our podcasts. If anybody wants to hear it, it's, it hasn't dropped yet. Oh. But it's called the Foxa Building. It was a it was it was a state of the art building built in the fifties, and um, I, I we actually spoke to a gentleman from the United States who was they had they had one of the units there, and he's and he was there the day of the revolution mm. and, and mm. that New Year that uh, during that I think it was Christmas Eve Christmas Eve. Uh, Celebration, and he sent me a picture of their their time there that night. It was a beautiful building, but now it's been it's just kind of like I think it's student housing or for visiting students or something like that. Um, massive building, but at the bottom level there was this booth, and you could change cash there. And this lady was in the line, and um, in front of us, we were there to, to exchange money for the CUC, American dollars for the CUC. She was there to uh, change some other I don't know what she had. Maybe she did have CUCs, and she was changing them. And I, th- I believe they told her at some and two other people in line after they had been there for a while that they could not change it because they were Cuban. They had to leave. Mm-hmm. So she walked away, and she was already beaten down. You could, like you said, just mm-hmm. demoralized. And mm-hmm. she said, "And she said, what a country." Mm. And, and she just walked away. What, what, what was the phrase in Spanish? <laughs> she said. Caballero, que país? And, uh, like saying, uh, like saying, like uh, I don't know how to caballero. Uh, 
don't know how to translate Cowboy? It. Yeah, that's a Cuban saying, caballeros. Yeah. So what was Cabo- that we say caballero to, uh, like, when we say, when we, I say, if I greet you, I say, hola caballero, como okay. estas? It's like a, it's like saying, is it like, oh man, it's like, oh man, what a land? Oh something man, like, what a land. Something like that. What a country. Yeah. What, what a country. country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she walked yeah. away just with her head down and she, yeah, she was beaten down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she said it that way. And I thought, mm-hmm. I thought that was, that wasn't a, that wasn't a cry of, of rebellion. Mm-mm. No, or joy, or even just despair. It's like there it is. What are you gonna do? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that made me more sad than somebody waiting for their ship to come in, and mm-hmm. maybe they're gonna make it, mm-hmm. yeah. selling something on the roadside, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in Guatemala or where, whatever. I'm just picking on that experience. But at the same time, what was so interesting was that woman just felt it felt like it just some woman that was in line at Chase Manhattan Bank. And what what did Destiny do mm-hmm. to create a situation where she she's waiting she, in a line? Which, by the way, thank you for taking me. I really appreciate the trip. But Marcos, that felt like I was going to some kind of seedy <laughs> underground, you know, yeah. maybe gambling hall or maybe like you know buying some illicit methadone or something. You know, yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. Uh, it, it didn't even feel like that was the most legit place to go get your money, and she's not even allowed in. That is also kind of a common theme with with authoritarian groups including cults for the for the poor cuban scene people are looking at these european tourists in really nice restaurants smoking cigars that cost one month's salary Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in i mean that there there were some very beautiful new buildings that had been going up yeah how how do you have any idea how people deal with that like we've been talking about they just it's it's what they know mm-hmm. they just mm-hmm. they 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 have nothing to compare it to because as much as 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 communication has expanded even on the island uh they have you know some people there's limited internet things like that there's 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 so little information there's so little for them to compare it to they could they hear from visiting family oh yeah in miami i have this i have mm-hmm. that we own a house we got a pool but they they can't they can't fathom that and also, they uh, like like you said. I think the biggest thing is that it's hard to tell because, like you said, in comparing the 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 these folks in Guatemala mm-hmm. um, that have a little skip in their step, mm. the, these in Cuba, there's uh, the oppression has b- they've they've grown so accustomed to walking a certain way, living a certain way, and it doesn't involve. A skip. <laughs> and that, that's not. There's no. It would no be offensive. Yeah, because because I mean, you you like I, I told you when we were recording that night in, in the hotel there in, in Vedado or the house we stayed in. I can't believe we did that. By the way, we yeah, that recording was, equipment, saying things kind of candidly. Yeah, <laughs> and there, on I, the balcony. Yeah, and and I ca- I mentioned there that even there I'm, we're on the second floor, which is actually pretty high because it's a high second floor. And I'm looking over my shoulder as I'm talking because yeah. even you know you you feel it. We, Jeff, you did it. You did it. You went. We went to a uh, <laughs> we went to a, eat at a, at a restaurant down the street from our the house we were staying in. And Jeff was talking, and he said because communism. <sighs> and then suddenly he just stopped, stopped like, yeah. and froze. <laughs> like, and, we, and looked. We all looked around for a second. His voice carries. That's like that know, scene from like, the Three Amigos yeah. where they're all in the bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah everything freezes. Do you have any beer? You know, and <laughs> yeah. From what I'm hearing, um, it's not just that you're trying each day to figure out how you're going to survive. Mm-hmm. I think what was sounds different from the folks that we came across in China was that there was still a hope that there 
could be more. There's a mm-hmm. hope that they could have Especially extra now. money in their pocket yeah, somehow. Now that they've, in, they've, they've been opening up to investment and things. So right. Because even possibility of... I mean, even the guy that was willing to, on his scooter, go take us to find some... Don't mention what it was. Cuisine yeah, that we wanted. Cuisine. Um, I know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> but that you know that he that he could maybe you know receive a tip or something yeah. from us for it. You yeah. know, and that that and then so he could have a really great week. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I think that there's that piece of hope, even if it doesn't come to everybody's way. You know that yeah. that would they you say can still have that. Yeah. Would you say, Marcos, that to counteract what Stacy's saying in in China, mm-hmm. that part of the problem is the danger of of taking any tips or selling cigars on the gray market, I'll call it black market or, mm-hmm. or whatever that you, you, you tell a story about somebody who got in trouble for chickens. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, my friends, uh, Mike, one of our friends, um, her cousin, um, we're smoking cigars, by the way. These are really good. <laughs> These are we're actually smoking uh, from Cuba. Yeah, Romeo Julieta cigars that my friend sent to me. And we're fantastic. talking about uh, Roland, our, our mutual friend, because you, you got to hang out mm-hmm. with him in Cuba. He just came back from Cuba, and he sent these to me via North Carolina. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they arrived right before you got here. So mm-hmm. I thought that was, talk about Perfect I saw timing. you open the package. Yeah. Perfect timing. We were going we to pop into a little cigar shop, and he said, I think we got something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're got and you covered. do. That's a pretty good box. Awesome. Yeah. So my my um, our, anyway my my uh, friend's cousin uh, he was arrested a few years ago, sentenced if I'm not mistaken to five years in prison. I'm rounding it down because I think it was seven, mm-hmm. but it, let's say five. five years for good behavior. Five years. <laughs> now he was imprisoned because <coughs> he was selling chickens from his house. These are considered contraband. Okay. Because the government isn't... Because God, how dare you profit off, off of something that we're not getting a cut of? Hmm. Uh, or or f- how dare you profit of something that you're not supposed to sell in that manner? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to stand in line like everybody else and pay right. for it. So the sentence was five years wow. for selling a chicken, uh, selling chickens out of his house. Um, and, and what we're talking about is dead, you know, like like cut chicken mm-hmm. prepared here you go you know like that mm-hmm. that that uh he was raising he'd, he'd kill him and then he'd he'd sell them um so five years and and so what was funny was uh I, when when i heard the news i was like wow that's crazy so a little while later this guy came from cuba uh f- totally unrelated uh to one of our family gatherings and um he had just gotten here like literally like two weeks before and so I'm talking to him, and, and I said, you know, where are you from in Cuba, this and that. And, and I said, so what do you think of the United States? He goes, well, and he was a little proud. Like I said, they're, they're proud Cubans. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're proud of their nationality, their flag. So, and that and might be part get, of the tattoo yeah. answer, too. It might, yeah, like exactly. It's, it's, the, it's Abraham Lincoln yeah. on and he, the penny. You know, exactly. Like. And he was a younger guy, yep. and, you know, he was like, so he's from a you know, younger generation. And he says, well, I, it's good here. He says, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of, for, from, he, may, he mentioned something about the dis- disparity of wealth disparity and all that because of the houses that he's seen. They're very mm-hmm. large houses. Why are there so many big houses here? And then he said, uh, um, and then he said, uh, and, and the other thing is the, the prisons in Cuba are much more humane. Mm. And I'm like, oh, really? Coming from the country that had concentration camps. Um, <laughs> and, I said, and I said, how so? He goes, well, you know, in Cuba, if you're in prison, your family can come and visit you and bring you food, 
you can have conjugal visits with your wife. I don't know why he thought this was interesting. I, I don't know <laughs> that he... <laughs> well, you know. Uh, but he, uh, Maybe you know. he's got a little gray market chicken business on Maybe. the side. <laughs> yeah. So he said, hmm. so yeah, it's much more uh, humane over there. And I said, well, I said, I said, that's good. I said, but in the United States, and I told him, we don't arrest people for selling black market chicken because mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no... Black yeah, market. I, I apologize for saying gray market. Right, right. Well, my dad used to sell gray market German cars, so right. that's like gray market's kind of a family a family favorite term. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think you're going to get away with that in uh, in Fidel's Cuba. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and in the food there, so why are there just five things on the menu then? Well, mm-hmm. so basically, uh, the the you know since I've taken all these trips over there, I've I you know we we go we we go through the church. We've we've gone through through uh, uh, not with religious visas, but we work with churches, underground churches in in Cuba. So in doing so, we have uh, we have a team. We have teams in Cuba that that do this uh, ministry over there. That are they're nationals. They're Cuban nationals. So when we go, we take them to restaurants to eat. Mm. You know, so we uh, we uh, I've been to a few restaurants there, and and one of the the items that's in uh, in in uh, I when you start when you go you start seeing the the same menu items and now in, in Miami, it, for your audience, if if you want Cuban food, oh, and we you're had one amazing of these people, Cuban yeah. food here in Miami. By the way, thank thank you very much. Sure, Marcus, sure. No, if you, <laughs> day was yeah. especially nice. Yes, absolutely. Wait, what, where did we go? We went to Versailles, which is uh, kind of the, the the most known Cuban restaurant in, in Miami. It was classic, yeah. man. Yes, absolutely. That was something yeah, yeah. Else. It's old a, school. It's a touristy place, so all the tourist buses pull up there throughout the tourist season, but it also just happens to have really good Cuban food. It'll get you through. And it's, it's an iconic Friday place. Friday night at 7 o'clock, they got us right on. You can always get a table because it's huge, yeah. so that's why right. I like that place. Yeah. So that place was great. Lots of things on that menu. Yes, it was. More than five things. Yeah, so you, lots of things. So if you, and and if for your listeners, if you want Cuban food, uh, some, I've heard it said from many people, like, oh, I want to go to Cuba because I want to eat Cuban food. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> you come to Miami to eat Cuban food. Mm-hmm. You go to New Jersey to eat Cuban food. You can even go to L.A. and eat Cuban food. Chicago. <laughs> don't go to Cuba for Cuban food. <laughs> go to Cuba for other reasons, but don't go for Cuban food. Um, you'll eat well if you're a tourist. You'll eat I fine. En- I enjoyed it. Um, but but so they have what I, what I, when I started going, I started noticing that when we'd take the nationals to restaurants, we'd take them to uh, you know, touristy restaurants or whatever, and they always had, most of the restaurants uh, had the same menu items. And they were always... And they were, and they weren't menu items that I even recognized. Okay, they were not something that you would see, for example, in the menu at Versailles today. Mm-hmm. I, if I if you go to a, if I go to a Cuban restaurant in Miami, I don't even have to look at the the menu, but if I do, I know what everything is because mm-hmm. I've eaten that my entire life. My mm-hmm. mom made a lot of these plates. My different family members did, so we know this food. But there, it all had weird names, okay, and weird ingredients. And it was like maybe chicken, maybe pork. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on what we have. So what? I, what? Uh, there was one item that I thought was was cute, which was chicken Gordon Blue. This is with a G, G O R D O N, the name Gordon, not Cordon Blue. Okay. And blue, by the way, B L U E, not yeah. B L E U. <laughs> so I was I was saying this is funny. It's either a, like a misspelling, but every restaurant had Gordon Blue spelled like okay. that, and it said. So I asked my cousin who has one of the restaurants there. I said, um, I finally got it one time because I was curious. Mm-hmm. I said, what is it? And, and he said, oh, that's, that's, um, 
that's uh, chicken or pork, because <laughs> okay. beef, beef is illegal, um, that is uh, breaded, and, and then it's, uh, uh, there's ham, a slice of ham, uh, some kind of weird cheese sauce, mystery sauce, and then mm-hmm. a... Uh, not and blue then cheese. No, no, not blue cheese. There's nothing blue, blue, <laughs> blue about it. <laughs> so, uh, basically, he... Um, uh, he he explained what it was. They brought it. It was it was not very good. Mm-hmm. It was really mm. it was just bad. I had a lot of good things. And I would not recommend that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and then and then um, you know so I one day I I, I was able to meet a um, a chef a, a friend of mine Tony who actually lives in Cuba. We became friends and I taught and I asked him what what's this what's with this menu mm-hmm. it's this weird Cuban food. Mm-hmm. And he said, and he told me, he explained to me that uh, during the special period, which is when the Soviets pulled out of Cuba, and this is in the, in the early, late early 90s, um, they um, basically had, uh, they, they, turned, they knew they had to turn to tourism, the government. So they developed a culinary school. And they said, well, we, need to, we can develop a culinary school, but we're going to have to... Uh, uh, make uh, pre- present a menu that's according to what we have here, and what we're we're willing to serve in restaurants. So they came up with this menu, and the chicken Gordon Blue was either chicken or or the or Gordon Blue because it wasn't pollo yeah. Gordon Blue or chicken. It was Gordon Blue, which could be chicken or pork. So that's a that's a post revolutionary <laughs> post revolutionary uh, menu item in Cuba. So they developed a special menu for uh, f- to for the restaurant business that they were going to open up mm-hmm. in Cuba because there wa- there had been no no real tourism up until that point. So they they wanted they had a new initiative to to really expand and and uh, and one of the one of those initiatives was a culinary initiative. So they developed this these menu items that were unique right, uh, to right. to post revolutionary Cuba. So the funny story is is that. In Miami, like I said, we have our our standard menu. It's 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 what what our family ate um, since the liberation from Spain, pretty much okay. our, our ancestors, you know. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so what ended up happening was I assess, my wife and I go to a, a, a restaurant, and uh, they had a special menu for New Year's Eve the night before, and they had it on a on a board written out and um, and it said Gordon Blue as one of the special menu items and I said in Miami <laughs> like wait a minute so I asked well, uh, we sit down they see this and, uh, and I asked the waiter who was Cuban mm-hmm. I asked him hey I, I knew what it was but I wanted to hear what he said mm-hmm. oh, can you tell me what the Gordon Blue is and he very properly said oh yes sir it's, it's and he explained it the way I explained it earlier and I said oh that's really interesting because I've, I, I only asked because I've never seen that menu item in Miami. Miami right. And let me tell you why that's shocking, too. Because that's kind of a no-no in Miami. Okay. It's been a no-no. So uh, there was a time, as, and this goes back to kind of what we were talking about, how weird things got. There was 50 years, let's say, uh, of the revolution. Music that from artists in Cuba, it was a no-no to play them in Miami. And likewise... Music from artists in Miami who were Cuban, okay. it was a no-no to play them in Cuba. So you're not going to do the same thing with the food, right? So, yeah, so with a- anything. So, mm-hmm. But times have changed. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of artists from Cuba that come down here now and sing. And, and now 
and Cuba it hasn't changed. There's no Cuban <laughs> artists from Miami right. that go over there because they they're not right. allowed to. Right. What ended up happening was I I, I was I was uh, I, I asked him and he I said I've never seen this on a menu item in Miami and I'm just curious because uh, that's all I didn't I didn't have anything that so I was just, <laughs> I was just that. and then he goes and he he pauses and he looks at me kind of offended because he's Cuban recently arrived okay. at the time. He goes, well, that's Cuban food. <laughs> and I said to him, uh, nope, that <laughs> ain't Cuban food, buddy. Sorry. Not and historically. So what ended up happening is he walked away, and, and we had another waitress immediately. He, he said, go t- I guess he said, go take care of that table. I'm Have that <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Can I say, I, I know that I'm, I'm making some very interesting rainbow bridges from, from topic to topic, but here's how I find this interesting, that in many ways people – play this little shell game with ideas mm-hmm. and labels. Mm-hmm. This is a government of the people. Mm-hmm. This is a people's republic. Mm-hmm. Here's what that feels like. Not like a people's republic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a democratic <laughs> right, Congo. Right. Not right. a whatever, right? So we, 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 we joke about this. Whatever you label yourself, know, it's Church is called Grace Community not. Church. might not be gracious. Oh, that's hilarious. You know, yeah. You meant, yeah, yeah <laughs> I got a kick out of that. Somebody. Wait, t- tell, tell us real fast. This is good. I, got, <laughs> I, I was, oh gosh. Okay, so you, I had listened to your podcast. One, I think it was your second episode. And you and you mentioned that most of the churches that, that have that are called Grace Church mm-hmm. are really not about grace at all. I was going to say many of them. Yeah, of them. there's some great grace churches yes. out there. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, but say uh, well, let's just say there's no grace to you <laughs> in a lot of those churches. <laughs> to be timely, but uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> but but basically uh, there there was a guy that I I I stayed in Orlando last week and I met this really nice guy. And uh, he had, he's from, from he just flew in from England, and I was one of the first people he met. And he was a, 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 a seminary student, and he tells me, I ask him, oh, what, what, I, I thought, I assumed, because I'm, I'm a stupid American, that he was Anglican. Oh, okay. <laughs> so okay, okay. I go, oh, so you're with the Anglican church? Right, he goes, right, right. No. no, actually, I'm with Grace Baptist Church. And it was right <laughs> after I heard you talk about that. I said, wow, <laughs> timing couldn't be more perfect. <laughs> but... But, you know, that, that basic theme where you say, I, I came here to bring my family to church, give them peace, give them joy, give them, you know, this grounding and connection, and it's disrupted. Not all churches, but there are some churches. Not all governments, but some people say, hey, I'm going to put my trust in this secular religion to solve all my human problems, and now I've got <clears throat> a whole bunch of more problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is the human condition. This, is, this isn't new, and so it, 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 lest we think... Or lest someone think that we're we're trying to just pick on one right. tragic situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you can't. I can't imagine that anybody could see the last hundred years of the history of Cuba, and really a, a lot longer, despite all the wonderful things in the history. You've got a lot of tough, painful aspects to yeah. Yeah. to the narrative, and it parallels the way in which maybe people that have kind of come out with more affluence or more you know social standing in in western countries or whatever but we're still finding these problems where we put too much trust in ideas uh, apart from human love and relationships and yeah um, Mm -hmm. it's it's a real thing but it was also great for you to be able to do at least that little bit of reconciliation just to say hey we're 
like like the family members right. saying, "Can we put politics aside? We're in this together." Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, human, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The human yeah. tragedy and the human riddle is a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I read an article um, uh, that some a friend of mine posted on Facebook today, and it's and it was the top ten villains of Latin America. Okay, <laughs> and and I and now uh, as a Cuban American. Uh, of the exile community, mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, as we, as the old folks used to say, uh, I, I immediately my mind goes to Castro. But I'm I'm an objective guy. Mm-hmm. Right? You can think this through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't even clicked on the article yet. I'm right. like, no. Let me let me just see what's on the list, mm-hmm. and you know, and I wouldn't say anything about that anyway, because I, I mean, you know, wh- I don't, I'm not even sure what this list is about. So, number one, Joseph Mengele. Why? Because when he left Nazi Germany, he lived in, and he hid out in Argentina for many years until they, they, the, the Israelis came after him in the 1970s. So the first thing you're going to say, we can't start out and look like we're being racist or colonial here. We've got to make sure that we're going to start with somebody mm-hmm. that we can all agree with. Mm-hmm. A European Nazi. Yeah. This is this is funny. This is mm-hmm. yeah. all these top tens always work like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> interesting. Yeah, this right. is good. All right. So before we get there, all right. They also had Klaus Barbie on the list, <laughs> okay. which I thought that was funny because the only reference I have to Klaus Barbie is the movie Rat Race. If you haven't seen it, I yeah. highly recommend Putting it watching. Down it. on my list of yes, things that Marcos told me to watch. Rat Race. Very funny movie. Anyway, uh, and when you see it, you'll you'll understand why the Barbie Museum uh, <laughs> and uh, and somewhere. Uh, Silver City, near Silver City. Mm. Anyway, so um, then the, then the list went on, and there were several other folks on there. There was they had Blackbeard the pirate. <laughs> um, they had um, they had uh, who else? They had uh, gosh, a lo- lot of did lot Noriega, of Noriega. Did Noriega make? Well, make no, it? Noriega no. didn't make it on there. Um, Samosa didn't make it on there. Pinochet didn't make it on there. But wait, you know, come who, on. but wait a minute, but wait a minute. You know who did? All right, Fulgencio Batista. The guy that Fidel Castro overthrew mm. when my family was living like Cubans mm-hmm. should live mm-hmm. in peace along with all of their neighbors and all of their friends. Mm. Earlier this evening, you already admitted yeah. that Bautista did not have it, you know, squared up. Oh, yeah. He was corrupt. He mm-hmm. was, it, yeah. was, it was bad. But to put him on the list and leave with off... With Joseph Mengele. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But to leave off Pinochet. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and and then and then even the, there you you ask uh, so I guess the reason I bring it up is for that reason like you yeah. ask some Chileans and my wife is from Chile and they they they're the kinds that would say well Pinochet did a lot of good there was a lot mm-hmm. of good that came mm-hmm. to Chile because of Pinochet mm. and it's okay yeah we can look at that and there's some Chileans that you talk to and they're like I, that that uh, you know we need to dig them up and kill them again that's how they feel about them what was the category by the way of the top 10 villains of latin america so it does they don't have to be they don't have to be uh murderers no no they, they don't ha- they don't have to be uh, state states people they don't have to be leaders of states no no who was the guy there was a cult leader that was a baptist who left germany he was Nazi, but that wasn't his main thing. He wasn't leaving during that same period with the uh, with those other exiles from the Nazis in, in Germany. He stick he stuck around till I think the eighties, and then he started a commune in Chile. Oh, that was the Colonia, La Colonia. Yes, yeah. and Pinochet name. sent his political prisoners to be tortured 
to this sadistic Baptist missionary. Wow. Now that's how this yeah. whole thing, this whole thing kind of loops back together. Wow. <laughs> and by the way, just, just to, to be fair, to be yeah. fair and objective, yeah. that, that's, that, that's questionable that that actually happened. Oh, is that true? That yeah, wasn't yeah, necessarily yeah. true? That wasn't necessarily true. Well, that's that's what. That <laughs> that, I mean, it has to be investigated oh, a little well, bit. Well, that further, dude, okay. The dude, I will, I will, I will and, look it up too. But, but maybe but you shouldn't dude, cut it out because I, we can correct well, it up, this perception, right? Well, it is true that that dude was a was a terrible, terrible human. <laughs> yeah. Who, right? I believe it's the it's, guy from the colonial was a, was yeah, a, like a look, he, yeah. because he 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 had kidnapped a Jewish hiker no. in the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they killed him. So he was still bad. He had whether a, or not this yeah. was tied to the government. We'll right. pull, I will retract that. He set up a Nazi. Uh, basically, a Nazi camp there. Yeah, for, with communications, torture rooms, uh, prison, the mm-hmm. whole the whole nine. Yikes. Yeah, these were all over. Apparently, they were all like all over Chile, supposedly. But, uh, but yeah, the 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 I think I think uh, the reason I brought it up was because you 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 kind of people def- people make arguments for almost anything, and we defend mm-hmm. our sacred cows. You mm-hmm. know, so I think I think there the sacred cow is. You know, you stick some someone in there, and that. That's that kind of strokes academics and say, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. Mentioned Felicio, but he was horrible. How was he horrible? How was he that bad that you're going to put him on a list with Joseph Mengele <laughs> and leave others off? This? Are right, you, right. So leave others saying, off. Yeah, so you're so saying Fidel didn't get on there. Right. That's what no, I'm no, wondering. no. I'm saying that um, f- I'm, I, f- I personally would say that he was he's a villain to uh, to my family and the Cuban people. But, but I was think he on this list? He was not on the list at right. all. Mm. So yeah. they, le- they leave him. They le- how could you do that? But it's funny how some you know folks can be objective enough to say, uh, you know, well we can not necessarily you know I, I don't need to have him on the list to to know right. what, that right, he's right, a right, villain. Right, 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 right. But then and that same f- list would would be very happy and right to say that certain American presidents. Uh, like Andrew Jackson or something were right. bad dudes. Right, right, right. Even though they're on our, our money or something. But you can't say this. This is, this yeah, is that desire is like- not, to, not to look bad because so many people had invested in it. I will say that it was interesting about, about the whole Cuban thing is <clears throat> it presents a huge problem. So, so even if you look, uh, I think I, I read a book, like, uh, there was one of those Oxford books, it was a short history of socialism. Mm-hmm. There's a whole chapter dedicated to the, the problem as the problem of Cuba being an experiment. Right. Because you could always say, well, the problem with the Soviet Union was that it was just too many cultures and it was too big. You can do communism in a small scale, yeah, no, which yeah. makes a lot more sense. I mean, it, it, would, it would seem that if you're going to do it, you've got you to go small. You can't right. go big. And yeah. the centralization, and the, uh, the population, people don't know each other. You can't do it at that scale. Mm. But when you get to some of these smaller countries, Cuba in particular, where you have everything that could have played out, where you could have created a little utopia mm-hmm. if you played it right and if you kept the tourism going and it was you know maybe a place where the the hippie kids wanted to come in and, and yeah, have a whole sure. art mm-hmm. scene yeah. mm-hmm. you could have done it mm-hmm. problem is he was arresting the hippie kids because they right. had long hair and right. he was right. them for five <laughs> right. years well, <laughs> so, yeah and then so, the art, but it presents all the, the problem, art how come it goes wrong and then it makes you think this is the problem right if these guys are doing these bad things then we're going to give up on the socialist ideal and if you're a university professor in the United States and, and you lean that way, it's a real problem in the same way that if you're a Christian college professor and you're talking to a bunch of kids and every day in the news there's this priest scandal in Colorado that just came mm-hmm. out yesterday and 
Uh, the numbers are now getting so big that you can't quite make sense of it. It wasn't just like a few people. Right. It's so many people. And this presents a problem for the Christian kid. It's, all, it's a problem for all of us yeah. when we look at this. Ultimately, putting too much trust, trust in hierarchical authoritarian systems or leveling authoritarian systems, yeah. as the case may be, is, is a thing to watch out for. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Marcos. Oh, yes, thank you. How do we how do we get to the uh, Elector podcast? Yes. What's the best way to connect up, and where should we start? Best way is uh, on you, you can use the Apple Podcast app and and just punch in Elector, E L separate word L E C T O R uh, stories from the exiled south, and it's a it's a it's stories and cigars from the exiled south. We record it right here where we're sitting now, and we, my, my friends and I, we sit around, we smoke cigars, and we ask people to tell us their stories, or we just, you know, talk nonsense for a while. <laughs> I, a, I always do you have a, a favorite. Do you have a favorite episode? Uh, yeah. Well, one of my favorites is uh, is actually one of my favorites is the one I need to get from you guys from the old virgin the wasteland because mm. I don't I don't have it and I got to mm. put it on there. It's uh, from our trip to Cuba. Mm. I will download it and send yeah. it. Remind, <laughs> me, that remind me. I don't think we have it on there. Oh no, we do. We have one that's called We Went to Cuba. If you want to look mm. look look that one up, we have an, uh, we have another one that's. Um, that's actually my well. We were talking about my cousin's interview earlier. Uh, it's called uh, 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 Joseito in Spanish. It's J O S E I T O. It's an it's the interview's done in English. Uh, so you'll you'll uh, it's the story of my of uh, uh, an assassination in my family that took place in 1977, and my I interview my cousin. Uh, her father was the one who was killed, and she was a police officer investigating the case. It's a very interesting interview. Uh, for and yeah, those are my favorites. And then there's for the purposes of kind of like I, I think I sent it to you, Jeff. Uh, we we did early on. We were trying to figure out who we were, what we were trying to do because we're all Christians, the mm. four the four of us, and we're all uh, leaders in our churches. But we were like, are we doing like a Christian cigar thing? Or are we doing uh, <laughs> like, uh, what is this? Yeah. So we, I interviewed a good friend of mine, Dr. Joseph Holbrook, who used to be a pastor, and um, we talked about you know kind of his exit from the church for a time and what that was all about so that's an interesting one that would be a good one for our listeners in particular Mm -hmm. so that's a great place to start we will link to all these things thanks again for your hospitality and thank you for doing this i really appreciate it you really remind me that miami is the place to be absolutely it's awesome so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button and don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending you can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message please also follow us on twitter at the pynp And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much. Hey there, friends. In our travels across the U.S., we have found a website that we absolutely love. It's called Harvest House. Could you imagine camping overnight in a vineyard, distillery, brewery, or a golf course all to yourself? 
We've been doing it, and it is absolutely magical. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link where you can sign up and get 15% discount on the annual fee. We think it'll put a smile on your face, and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or camper with a toilet and cooking facilities, and you can stay all around the country for free. We hope you dig it as much as we do. Check it out.